we take the OpenGL class, so we're like, it'll, I guess it'll be 3D. And we pick, like, the um, Tron light cycle kind of game. Really? You know, like, as our, like, that'll be, like, our default. Because it's simple, right? That's, you know, really, like, that's really funny because I mean, you were telling us, I was like, yeah, so I took a graphics class back in school. It would have been about 99. Yeah. And I was, it was OpenGL, like an OpenGL game. And I made a, a Tron light cycle. Did you really? Game. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. It was obviously in the same generation. Hi everybody, this is Soren Johnson and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today we are talking to Brad Muir, who is a designer programmer at Double Fine. He was a programmer on Psychonauts, the lead designer of Brutal Legend, and the project leader on Iron Brigade. Brad is currently leading the development of Massive Chalice, the tactical strategy game now available on Steam Early Access. Before we begin, I need to apologize for the audio quality of this episode. I brought my fancy mic to the Double Fine office to record Brad, but I somehow forgot to turn it on inside Audible, so our conversation was unfortunately recorded on my laptop's built-in microphone. Thanks to Michael Hermes for helping to clean it up, and I promise to double-check my settings in the future. We're surprised Gamer made the cut. I'm like... Did Coke make this for my our, our company fridge or something? Like, why is my Coke can suddenly say gamer? Yeah. Super weird. And haven't they, haven't they heard about the term? Yeah, I know. Seriously, at this point, you got to shut it down. <laughs> you got to shut that promotion down immediately because we're not. Yeah, we can't have. We're not called gamers anymore. We're. I don't know. Oh, that whole thing is, is really rough. Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> it's weird. I'm kind of glad it's happening in a way, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like, I don't want to get into fights with people about it. Like, I don't really want to get super involved in it. Are you recording this? this I don't know. Yeah, it's like, I definitely like that it's bringing these things to light. It's just that I hate that it exposes, like, all the hatred in such a, like, such a crazy way. You know, just yeah. seeing it, like, firsthand and just seeing some of the arguments and what people are raging about is just crazy. Like... I've actually more fascinated by, in simply terms of like I don't even know what to call it like news story event thing like normally because I I I don't I don't really even understand what happened like it's hard to even understand what happened or what is happening yeah. or what people think is happening like everyone yeah. seems to have their own perspective I, on I it. I completely agree like, with that. Often when you say here the two sides argue if it even makes sense to say sides like they're often talking about kind of totally different things. Yeah. And like. Um, there's not like like one or two articles will actually explain to someone who has no idea what's going yeah, on, what I, is going on. I've had a really hard time just trying to follow it and make sure that I know like what both of the side want. Right. Well, actually, I mean, I understand what the you know the more like feminist like hey like looks like games have some issues like maybe we can talk about them like that makes a lot of sense to me. That is like a very straightforward uh, logical. Yeah, it's a good argument. You know, it's a good at least place to start, and just it, it largely looks like just a knee-jerk reaction on the other side of just like, don't take my toys away, don't fuck with my toys, and that's like, 
Yeah, it's sad. It, like, that part is really sad because I think that we can make these things better for everybody and yeah. that would be really rad. Like, I don't know why it has to feel like someone's coming in and, like... Yeah. Well, the, the, the great thing to me for an important... The, the, when I look at this, the... What I, what my basic understanding of what's going on, like I said, it's hard to figure out, but the idea that a game like The Crushing Quest could lead to... AAA game developers changing the type of games they make is like both absurd and awesome. <laughs> like that was first of all, that will never happen. That's impossible. And then but the fact that people are even considering it as like in the realm of possibility is kind of yeah. cool, right? Like is, I don't, I don't even cool. know what to say about it. And it's funny that yeah, the yeah, it feels like the other side, the gamergate side or whatever you want to call it, is like really worried about that kind of the thing, you know? Like but it's weird because I I feel like I didn't play it, so I guess I shouldn't really talk about it. But that um spec ops the line. Mm -hmm. I did not play that game, but I feel like it was trying to address issues more than just like, oh yeah, like you're a guy, you're a, you're a US soldier in the desert and you kill a bunch of people. It was like trying to have like a little bit more about like PTSD and like other yeah. kind of things. And that's awesome. So like I do think that something like Depression Quest hopefully could make people think about trying to include yeah. more mature topics in their games or something. But um, yeah, I guess I, I, I kind of see a little bit of I guess it kind of just makes sense for it. Like, if you use games as 100% escapism, mm -hmm. you probably don't want every game to what? be about depression or something. You know, like, well, if you're depressed, you want to issue here in that I feel like any time a developer comes to the game, comes to any game, trying to make a very specific point, excuse me, those are often games I don't enjoy very much. I often feel like there's not room for me. And this is this is just a general... It doesn't have anything to do with whether it's coming from like a liberal side or a critical yeah. side yeah. or whatever. Like anytime I feel like a game is ideological, like I, um, it, it definitely lowers my interest in that game. In that, and I, I doubt that's, you know, I doubt the sort of gamergate side or whatever. That's what they're how they're thinking about it cognitively or whatever. Right, right. But like I think there is a little aspect of that to where, like games that are meant to make you know, very pointed arguments. Um, it, because the players spend so much more time with the game than you do with, like, you know, a movie, mm -hmm. right? Or or beyond that, even with a book. I mean, books are, you know, a, a long-term experience, right? If you're going to, you know, actually, if you're going to, yeah. you finish someone. But, but it's um, just the, is it the agency aspect of it? Yeah, that, but the fact the that the, the player, I think the player almost feels like they're doing some of the work as well. Right, like when when a game happens, right, it's this thing that happens between the designer and the player, and the player is is you know the player's offering experience as well, right? And so if if you feel like um, you know the, the designer is trying to hammer home some point through the game, um, you know I, I I don't know if I have the right words to describe it, but it, it you know it feels like you're being pushed or prodded or or led or whatever. Um, I would totally agree with that. I'm trying to think of a game that. Did that like I feel like Last of Us did that thing. Um, yeah, I guess that's a spoiler, but near the end of the game, you're the main character. You're sort of like forced to kill this like pretty innocent character, and there's like no way around it. And it's just you just have to do it. And like, yeah, it just feels really it just feels really awkward because immediately afterwards, um, your character like you know kills another character in a cutscene. Right. And it's just like, that's fine. You know, it's like they should have just, you know, it was like this illusion of agency. 
I didn't have any joints. I was the one who had to pull the trigger. Sure. Because they were, I, I think they were trying to like make it more powerful, but it actually completely undermined it for me where it was just like, no, you're just, you know, you're almost like mocking my interactivity at this point and my agency and my like, you know, I'm not allowed to bring anything to that sure. moment. And it's just like, well, I mean, Spec Ops line that parts like that as well, right? Like that one of the, the big pivot point of that game is like the, the white phosphorus segment. I, I didn't play that game. I feel bad. <laughs> it's okay. I brought it up, but I, I haven't played it. <laughs> it's okay, but the 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 idea there is like you're you're you know the game forces you to do this this horrible thing, and like a lot of players like understood that and didn't want to do it, but there's really like like whatever choice you make. Like you, you can't you can't get around it, right? Like because because the designer realized, well, some players are gonna, you know, be like, look, I don't want to, I don't want to do this atrocity, but it doesn't it doesn't fit into what he's trying to say to let the player make right. a choice there, right? Right. Um, the first time you play through that game, it can work, right? But if After you play that, if you play through it again, it puts it puts you as the player like in such a weird position because you like you know that you shouldn't do it because you know what's gonna happen, but then you kinda know also know that you have to do it. And then again I feel like that's like undermining your yeah. I don't know. But that's weird. That's like I don't really I don't really have a desire to make games like that. Yeah. And you don't have a desire to make games like that. Like I I, I totally appreciate them. I yeah. and I, I hope that we can see more interactivity get injected into that sort of like quote unquote narrative games or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, I think it, it only helps it. Like, yeah. I mean, it's weird. I don't think it was necessarily like his intention, but like you could you could read the kind of big climax of Bioshock is almost like kind of mocking the players, right? And like absolutely. It's it's. I think every game that kind of goes down that path will always kind of have that problem. And like I don't know. It feels a bit like a bit of a dead end to me. Um, but, yeah, I kind of hate having that opinion, but I totally agree. Like I just think that it it it, it is like a bummer. It's a bummer. It bums me out when um, I, I feel like, and it's. I, I've been really happy over the last like I don't know, like five years where more mechanics driven, usually indie games have sort of like kind of uh, come to prominence or whatever. And there's you know you can have a game that's just very mechanically focused and just a lot of press and be like a big deal and stuff. Because I felt like it was going down the road where we were just kind of emulating Hollywood and we're just going you know down this like single-player, linear kind of things, and, like, that's, like, that's where the money is going to go. That's where the budgets are going to be. That's what the, you know, we're only going to have those kinds of games, mostly. Right. And, yeah, I'd be pretty happy that it's... Yeah. Um, and not, like, I want to see those go away or anything. I just wanted to see it, like, sort of even out a little bit more, and I think that I think that it really has, and that's cool that it's, like, you know, there, there's room for, like, all sorts of different stuff. But I do think that focusing on interactivity, it's, like, that's... But they're a trump card as a medium. Like, and, and when a game, like, actively seeks to, like, remove it from the player, like, man, it just, it feels like a missed opportunity. It feels like a bummer. Um, it feels, it feels like some of the people that are making those games, like, do they really just want to make a movie? Like, maybe they should just make movies. Like, I, and, like, I, I don't even mean that as a slight. Like, I just mean that as, like, if you're not letting me really be part of the game other than, like, shooting guys in the face between your story beats, like, I, I don't know. Like, as a, as a player, I don't find that super interesting. As an experience, it can be good. And, and as a narrative, it can be good. Like, I get that, but, um, yeah. yeah, there are some games where I just, I would, I would rather just watch them. Yeah. You know, I would rather just kind of sit back. Well, I, I'm trying to make peace with narrative games. 
you know, like in the sense that like I don't want to get I don't want to get like uh, self righteous about it in the sense that like you know games should be about interactivity and they're about mechanics and like this is what it is. I mean that's that's what I believe as a designer, right? Only in the sense that those are the type of games I want to make. But like I don't want to you know make it sound like I don't want people to make you know games that have less of that. Only in the sense that I think there should be room for all sorts of things. You know? And you know maybe maybe the problem is just you know one of, of definition or whatnot. But I, I think it is interesting the ones of those that I found most successful recently, you know, in terms of, like, take something like Gone Home. Um, obviously, that's a game that doesn't give you any choices. It's a question of, like, how you, how you go through the content. But I think that the, the length is important, and the fact that you're not supposed to, it's not trying to force you through um, inappropriate hoops, right? Like, it helps a lot that you can go through that experience in an hour and a half, right? Yeah. Like, um, you know, maybe Does, some, is that all it took for you to play? I feel like I, I probably spent three or four hours with that game. Well, I'm really, I good, would, I'm really good at those. You're really, <laughs> you're like, you're like, I'm actually, you don't realize this, but uh, I'm a pro. I'm kind of a big deal at the esports scene of Gano. Gano. <laughs> I feel like I went through it very methodically and like super, yeah. Right. But I guess it could, it can be very short as well. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the. I mean, what you do the argument is like the the um, interactivity is like how you experience it yourself, right? Like how you go through it, what you put your priority up, which where you want to spend your time, um, and that's that's fine. But I mean, I think just at the very core that it's something that's not it's not trying to slow you down, right? Mm-hmm. You can go through that story at the speed you want to. Yeah. Um, whereas um, you know more canned, you know, AAA giant production, it's kind of like, um, here's this, you know, theme park challenge you gotta get through, and now we have some story stuff, and here's this theme park challenge you yeah. get through, and how you have some story stuff, like, it's just kind of a, um, it's not a very integrated experience, right? Or even think about, like, uh, like That's a good so- point, because I, I really liked Gone Home, and I haven't really, like, broken down, like, well, why do I like this? You right. know, what, and I, I do think that Sometimes the those those gameplay chunks in the more traditional experience that you're talking about, like they do tend to feel like hoops that you just kind of yeah. have to jump through. And and you're like, I there have been times for sure, especially you know, usually it's in the back third of a game like that, where you end up like kind of resenting the right, gameplay, right. Like, where you're like, I'm invested in the story, like you got me, like I want to yeah. finish this thing and see where the characters end up or whatever. But it's like you're also really trying to drag it out. It just feels like they're, you know, they're just stacking more and more hoops and usually it's sometimes, you know, more difficult hoops and that's where you're like, oh, I really should have put this on easy so I can plop through this. It's, um, yeah, and there's, I, I, I really just like that sort of, um, that like resentful feeling where you're just like, oh man, I wish this, I wish this section was like way shorter. And it's like, that's the game part of the game. <laughs> like when you find yourself like not enjoying the game part of the game, right. like then it's like, well, it was really interesting oh, to see so see the progression of the first season of Walking Dead, right? Because you could tell as they went through the from episode to episode, they they started dropping out more of the sort of the gamey traditional elements. I have not played that either. I'm a bad person, so <laughs> this is gonna go out. Yeah, this is totally. Yeah, it's. I have a really good. Brad excuse. needs to go away for a couple of days. I have a really good excuse. I've been <laughs> I've been trying to get my wife to play that game with me, 
and I bought it, and it's like sitting there. And I'm sure. Like, okay, one of these days, you guys watch the we're gonna series. Like, yeah, and she's like, like yeah. whatever, but like she does not play games at all. But I'm like, oh, this is gonna be. Yeah, I could. This is gonna be the game that where I can like actually like you know we can talk about the choices and it's gonna be awesome. And it's just like, yeah, we've been so so busy with whatever. I don't know. Got married, and now ugh, I don't know. This mass child thing, and there's just there's a bunch of crazy stuff that's been happening where we haven't really like had the time. I, I everybody says it's amazing, though. Yeah. and I for sure had heard that about it though. That right. the, like as they, the as action they elements got... and the sort of gamey elements, right. they they realized that that was not the sort of primary experiential draw of that game, and right. that if you if you took them out, you actually just end up with a more compelling experience because you're you're not trying to be something you're not. Yeah. You're not, and you're removing the poops, right? That's yeah. kind of like where you're going. Sorry. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, at the, the micro level, when, even when I design a single game, I'm often looking about, like, what it's interesting is to, to, like, take certain elements out and then just see, like, how, whether the game still holds together or not. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a lot of stuff in games that people think needs to be there, but doesn't actually need to be there. And the, the experience improved, you know, as you went through the season, as you, you know, you really got to spend your time on the narratives, on the narratives and the choices whatnot and, and you know the, the, these other you know gaming aspects were you know kind of like this vestigial thing from, from before so um like i think there is you know there's a place there's a there's a place for those type of games but i think they really need to double down on what they do you know um and, and at the same time like game mechanics can say something too right like i think that's absolutely that's that's a hard um you know it's it's one thing to write a narrative where you feel like it's trying to get a specific, you know, message or theme across. I mean, that's, there's centuries of, of cultural history there, right? Like, but, like, how does that work when you're when you're dealing mostly in in rules and mechanics, and you know, the, the play is going to you know, come out from that? Like, I think we're still figuring out how to do that or what that means, or um, you know, how much room you know, should be the player there or not. Um, like it's great. It's like, for example, think of like Crusader Kings two, right? Like that's a game where um, people who play it suddenly, you know, like they they get that feeling like, um, man, things would go a lot better if I just found a way to like kill off my firstborn son, you know? Like, like that guy's gotta go, yeah. you know? And suddenly they 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 sit back and they're like, what am I doing? Like how how is this you know how is this game made me think that? It's and, awesome like, that that just drops right yeah. out of like the the emergent narrative. It's not like the that was something that they. You know, again, had you jump through hoops towards, and then sort of you have this moment of realization, and that I mean, just even the fact that you have, like, you have the agency to perform that act in that game is like crazy and super interesting. You know, like I think that that that's awesome, man. I found that game completely opaque. I've like, especially like starting Master Out, so many people were like, "Oh my god, you have yes!" It's like had such. Crusader Kings 2 notes, like, yes, and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try again, you know, I tried again, and I, I've, tried, I've tried three separate times, and I, I think that it's just, the thing that I don't get about it, because, like, I'm, I like multiplayer games a lot, and I've gotten dragged into some, like, absurdly complex <laughs> multiplayer games, but it makes sense to me that these things can, like, virally spread, because, like, you're into this multiplayer game, you convince your friends, and especially if it's co-op or it's team-oriented, that's like you know the, the ones that I think have the best shot. Where you convince your buddies, and then they come, and you can train them up, and then now they're into it, and then they'll train other people, and cool, it just sort of spreads out like that. But with a single-player game, 
that is as complicated as Crusader Kings 2, I just, like, don't understand how people get into that game. Like, I guess it's more, um, like, YouTube videos and tutorials and kind of, like, that stuff. I just think that I'm, like, too old school for that. I, like, I, like, expect, if it's a single-player game, for whatever reason, I sort of expect it to kind of, like, teach me how to play it or something, because I, like, something about, like, watching a video of somebody explaining how, like, deep and complicated the thing is, I'm like, well, the game should just do this, like, you know, it just feels really weird to me, but, um, but I know that it's amazing, like, I, I can clearly see, even from my, like, um, uh, you know, just lightly messing around with it, I can see, like, how incredible it is, oh, it also has one of my pet peeves in video games, I don't understand why, like, everybody's got these things, like, why, a giant man, a giant representational <laughs> animated man on a map. It's something that I like. It, it. I have an irrational sort of like. Like I like flip out when I see it. Um, oh, you sound like the artist on Sephora. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was fighting with them over this issue. And I'm like, it's the guys, you know, the men are like out of scale with the buildings. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like the buildings are already crazy like, out of scale. Yeah, again, like, I don't think there's a solution to it, but like, I it just, just looks weird. Yeah, it's just, yeah I just. Um, I think Civ 1 is, like, my favorite because it feels, like, the most iconic just with the, like, sure. 2D, like, you know, icons for all the things, like, whatever. And this is, I like, I completely copped to this being, like, totally irrational. Like, just the fact that that, that bothers me. I don't know, but Crusader Kings 2 has that in spades. Yeah. They have one giant animated man. And they're, all, just, they're all walking to play. <laughs> they're, the they're just so hilarious looking. Like, like and it's funny because... Um, I was arguing with somebody about this. This is so far off topic. Is this off topic? No, there is yeah. no topic. Um, like the, you know, the, I was I was talking to them about how like I have this irrational thing about this, and they were like, well, "What should it be? You know, Ugh. what should it be?" And I was like, I was like, I think the answer is like really easy. It should just be like a, you know, it should feel like a Napoleon map where you're like, you know, you have a it's just a figure and you're like pushing it around. around. Yeah. And if you want to get fancy with it, I feel like you could you could even do the. Um, Whatever that pusher thing is. <laughs> Could you imagine, like, if they all had physics and you had the, yeah. you know, you actually had the stick come in from offside and push them you around. You accidentally push it the wrong way. It's like, oh, it'll be, so, it'll be so cool. It'll be so cool. And there's also um, Hitman Go. Have uh, you seen that yeah, Hitman yeah, Go? Okay. So cool. Like, like the fact that, um, you know, there's no actual, like, character animation in that game, but it had such a style. And it's, it's probably, like, 100 times cheaper to do these, like, just figurines that they animate around a little bit as opposed to, like, doing a fully animated character that's going to look kind of silly, like, you know, walking around in your giant map. So, I don't know. I would love to see that. Yeah. Um, maybe the next day we'll have, you know, <laughs> like, you can turn on, like, iconic representation and you can get, like, yeah, yeah. You know, things like that. I don't even know why it bugs me. Like, it's just it's just a strange thing. Like, I just, it, it's just a pet peeve. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was also, I feel like, sort of... Um, making me feel like Crusader Kings 2 is not necessarily, like, aimed at me for whatever reason. Well, I, that game requires an investment. I mean, I, I multiple times tried to climb the hump with Paradox Games. And that was, that was, did you finally get into that one, though? What's I mean, it like, I got into enough where, like, I really appreciated what it did. I, I had to literally block out a full day and just be like, okay, this is it. Like, yeah. We're going we're gonna to do this thing. <laughs> like, I'm going to get to the point where I, 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 I see what's going on there. And um, I think that they've, Paradox has put themselves into a tough corner to begin with in that they're sort of rework they've been reworking the same game engine for yeah you know, over a decade now, and so there's a lot of stuff that's just 
carry forward from game to game, just had a pure momentum. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that you could really cut like half of the stuff out of your synergy too, and really focus on just the the you know the bloodlines. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the you know the uh, yeah. I mean those the, little emergent hierarchies and stuff and the, like that's you know the, that's the lineages stuff and stuff. That's what people really love. All the crazy plots. And I, and it's crazy that you know. I feel like a lot of people didn't even know what a paradox game was. Mm. You know, like I, I knew what they were, but I like did not play them because I thought they were like too grognardy or whatever, like right. too complicated, whatever. But like, yeah, this one was a personal touch, right? It's, yeah, it, it's like all of a sudden I feel like it took root, it like caught on because they have this amazing like the the personal yeah that personal touch, the fact that it's like actually about these people and their lives and stuff, and that's like the important part, not like you know, grain and trade routes and, you know, I, I don't know, like, I don't know what, what, uh, you know, a hardcore pre-Crusader Kings 2 Paradox gamer would say. It's probably all of those more, like, mechanical things that they get really into, all that historical and all that stuff. But yeah, this one just gave it more of a soap opera-y kind of, like, flair, and it, just like, that was the thing that they were missing, you know? And kind of awesome that they can, like, work on a thing for... 10 years and just do all these iterations of it and then bam, it like finally kind of catches on and like explodes out. It's really, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I've been really, I mean, I'm really happy for them that they've, you know, they've been able to work on this type of, these type of games for so long uh, because clearly these are not the type of games that any publisher would ever, you know, for the 10 foot pole before sure. there was any proof of success. So, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, you know, they were, they were doing this back in the old days where, you know, they, they had to believe in themselves, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, so actually, we probably should turn this to <laughs> something that's not that just so rambling, rambling about games. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, we, what I usually like to do with these podcasts is start out asking, um, like, what's like what's the first game that you remember um, that was significant to you that really stands out? Or, yeah. or even just, like, when's, what's, yeah, what's yeah. literally the first game? Um, did you, you remember Hunter Wow. Lumpets, yeah. Like, um, like moving from room to room and like listening for like the wind and that type yeah, of thing. Yeah, my dad had um wow. he had this crazy like I don't even know what it's called. It was like a kind of like an old a like terminal? briefcase computer oh, almost okay. kind of thing for his uh for his day job. Okay. Uh he's been in like uh he's what been year was this? This is probably I was probably like I guess like maybe five or six, something like that. And so that was probably 84, 83, something like that. Um, yeah, and it was one of those, it had like a, the, the screen, it was like one of those monochrome amber screens that was like three by, it was like a three by no like card. The, the top literally flipped open. Yes, yes, yeah, so it was not, it was not like, yeah, it had like a hard top that you would like pull off of it. Yeah. And then it was just a keyboard with like a little tiny three by five monitor, monochrome, like super tiny thing. And uh, I, I, I like remember playing Hunter Muppets with him on it. And yeah, that's like it's just like a um, totally text-driven uh, kind of. Actually, you know what? It sort of feels like roguelike when I think about it now, in, sure. in the context of like modern game design and stuff, where it's like uh, you're in this randomly generated like dungeon, I guess, and all the rooms are connected together in like a grid, and there's certain actions that you can do. It sort of feels like 
Dirt feels like a, like a roguelike version of Zork or whatever, right. I guess, where you can you can say to go like north, south, east, or west to move to the next room, and you can like yeah, listen for the wind because that means that there's a pit, a pit in the, one of the nearby rooms, but you don't know which one. No, I eventually I I never played Hunt the Wumpus, but I played. Um, there's this really great not not the one that most people think about, which I guess was on the, the NES or you know, the, the, but there's this version of Ducktales that was on. It would be either the Yu-Gi-Oh! or the, the Commodore yeah. 4 that I played, you know, the late 80s or whatever. And it was a bunch of mini games stuck together. And only later, after I learned about how the Muppets worked, I realized yeah. that one of the mini games they put in that game was Muppets. Like, you're literally moving your guys from, like, cave to cave. And, like, some of the caves are um, are pits. And, like, so you yeah. have to listen to the wind and whatnot. And it was, like, that was really And weird. it was yeah, such a bizarre thing because I... That's basically all it was. That there's there's the wumpets in there that it's also moving. Every time you move, it right. can move, and you can like I think you can smell for it or something. And then you have to shoot your bow. I want to say that you had a bow, and you like shoot the bow at it. Um, and there's just all these like weird rules and like like unexpected things that happen. And I just remember sort of like being fascinated by the fact that you had so much like control over what's happening, you know. And it's right. like. I also like the imaginative aspect of it. The fact that, like, it was all tech, so you just had to sort of, like, imagine what a Wumpus looks like. And, I mean, it's not describing anything to you, really. Like, what does a Wumpus look like? Like, you had to sort of think about what it could look like and sort sure. of imagine the, what the whole thing was like. Um, but, yeah, I think that that was kind of the, the gateway drug, I guess. Um, but I knew, like, I was a big Nintendo kid after that, too. That, that sort of, like, that really sealed it, like, did you, guys, did you have like a home computer, like a Apple no, or a Commodore? No, you just right to the we never. We we didn't really. Um, we eventually had like a an 8088, uh-huh. and I guess that was probably like right near the same time as like the NES. And it was, uh, yeah, we were playing like Karataka, and I like I was into that too. Like I really liked, uh, I really liked that era of games. But it was not. Yeah, we never had an Apple II or a Commodore. So it was like basically like things that got ported on like the early PC stuff. I played some of that, but yeah, mostly mostly focused on like console gaming and the maps. And it was like like totally loved Mario One. It was right. like that was you know that was like the big system seller for it. Sure. And I remember like mowing lawns and like getting you know saving money to, to get a Nintendo. But it was really Zelda Zelda One that was the thing that like really really like drove it home. You know that was the, like I totally remember just putting that. Cartridge is gold. Like I was such the target <laughs> market. You know, like I was just the exact right age remember. for uh, for the Nintendo to just like hit my brain. Like it's square. So hard on. to. I mean, I remember because I remember it was like my friend, my friend Brad. He had a Nintendo and he had Super Mario. And the first time I'd ever seen it. And they're like, you can't. Before that, it'd been like an old Atari or ColecoVision yes. or whatever. Oh, I, I did play the shit out of the Atari. I did the Play Six Hundred, and I absolutely love that too. But. It just, yeah, the Nets was such an insane step up. It was it's hard crazy. to explain to the kids who were born after, people who were born after. Yeah. Because they're coming kids. Now they're adults. <laughs> now they're adults. They're millennials. They're millennials now. But, like, uh-huh. how much of a shock that oh my God. It was, was. Like, yeah, like, it, yeah, it was basically, like, I mean, the, I would say maybe, like, PS1 to PS2 
times 10 or something that in terms of like what your brain was doing to those images or something because like, before then it was because it basically felt like suddenly there was an arcade console in, like there was yeah. an arcade cabinet in your, in yeah. your tv and now yeah. it could play any game you wanted to like your mind literally exploded like before then everyone realized okay it's neat that this is an atari but this is not like anything like what i yeah. in the arcade there's no like, way it's just it's just whatever right like and then when, once that happened you know it was just changed the world right it was it was just amazing, like having yeah, having access to that like fidelity, and it's funny to say it now, right? Like we get it now, it's almost like absurd, but um, yeah, I just remember playing Bella One, like getting the gold cartridge, and one of the other things I loved about that game is that it was um, well, I I just remember putting the cartridge in and just seeing the title screen and just like having it like watch over me, mm-hmm. you know. The, like, you know, really, it was. That was the thing that was amazing. One really nice thing about Super Mario, and I guess this actually comes from arcade games. I was just thinking about this recently. One really neat thing that game did was when you, you put it in, the game just started playing, right? Like, the guy just started running and jumping. And, like, so if you didn't yeah. know what the game was... You had, like, just, an attract mode, like, you were just, into it. Yeah, you were just watching it. And, like, I, I've almost almost thought, like, you know, like, games should do that nowadays. Like, when you're, instead of having some, like, some, yeah. like, you know, startup screen thing that's just spinning, like... It's like, you know, like for the game working on right now, like, you know, Offworld just start, start a game. Just have yeah. the people watch the AI play just to, like, get some sort of sense of, like, what, what the game is. Yeah. Especially when it's something that's, like, new and different. Right. You don't really know. Right. I mean, that's the way arcade games were back in the day, right? Because you walk through an arcade and yeah. you, you'd want, you know, totally call it, yeah, the track mode for a reason, right? right it's yeah. like trying to actually get people to come over and, like, put a quarter into it and, and check it out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, something about Zelda 1, though, it was such a, like, it was the first game that had, like, you know, battery in the cartridge and was, like, you could save your progress, and that was, like, that was just so huge for, uh, at the time, like, just that completely expanded, like, what was possible with, like, a home console game, and um, the other thing, just the mystery of it was crazy, but nobody knew what it was, they had the craziest commercial for it, like, I, that crazy commercial of, like, the dude the crazy curly hair and he's got this black turtleneck on and I think he's supposed to be like in an insane asylum and he's like bouncing off the walls and he's saying all the names of the Zelda enemies like tectites and levers and shit and they're they're intercutting it with um with footage of the game which like doesn't really look like any game you've really seen before on a console like you don't even know what's happening but like being able to start that up and just sort of like like there's almost no direction in the game like you kind of start up and you know, like, even with Mario, it's like, like, like you were saying, like, with the attract mode, you just kind of know that you should be moving to the right, and it just kind of makes a lot more sense, whereas, like, Zelda, like, you can go wherever you want, you can explore this world, do whatever, they don't even start you out with a weapon, like, if you don't go into that cave, like, you're like, what the hell do I do? And I'm pretty sure I didn't, like, the first time I played the game, and just, you know, like, you're like, how do I fight these Octoroks, like, what the hell am I doing, and it just nothing makes sense, um, and it just, you know, you just slowly, like, learn it for yourself. And also, as you go through it, like, over the course of, like, weeks, I mean, I guess that's the other thing, too, is, like, thinking about how every game had to really, like, last you, and that that was one of the games like that, and maybe later, like, Final Fantasy 1 were just awesome because, you know, they did have this, like, you know, you felt like you were making a lot of progress, and they lasted, like, a very long time, and it was was awesome, but, you know, playing Zelda 1 over the course of weeks, and just having, like, all these crazy secrets that are, like, uncovered by just random word of mouth stuff, like people, right. like kids talking to each other on the playground about it. 
it felt like so different from how information travels now. Like yeah. it was, it was really cool actually. To sort of like have kids talk about you know finding the eighth dungeon, finding the sixth dungeon, or whatever, and like how you know it you just sort of spend a lot of time being stuck. Yeah, it almost like, makes you wonder if like kind of the um, the popularity of, of um, you know particularly generated games recently is almost like a reaction to the fact that we can't have that moment anymore. Yeah. Like with, with you know, you play a game like Spelunky, like you're not going to, you know, you're not going to have the dungeon ruined because no one's ever seen right. it before. Then it's right. You, you know, whereas nowadays it's, 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 you can't, it's impossible if you're going to author something that means that you're, you're essentially, you might as well just post the map to the web and like, release the game, right? right. Like, because it's just going to happen right. anyway. Actually, Somebody the reason you don't do it, it is because you're lazy and you know they're, they're going to do it for you, right? <laughs> totally. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, people will do that immediately. Like, if there's any kind of community around the game, yeah, they will totally dissect it immediately. Yeah, you know, the way it goes. And there is something um, kind of sad about that. That yeah. like, there's also I was thinking about this the other day about how like cheat codes have kind of gone away. You don't really see like cheat codes in games anymore, and it's just like the temptation of the cheat code. A player will ruin their own experience. I used to cheat code because they think it will be really fun, but it actually like completely undermines the game and destroys the experience and makes the game boring. And it does all these things that uh, they're not really thinking about when they kind of see the temptation of this like infinite ammo or uh, invisibility or whatever. Um, and I, just, they just kind of, I feel like they quietly went away from everything. But I, I think that again, like if the map is posted, if you know that you can just go to game facts, you're not going to spend tons of time banging your head on something. You know, like, why would you do that when, you know, the game packs is out there? Also, I think that goes, like, hand-in-hand hand with the fact that, like, there is so much content available now. Like, comparatively, oh, yeah. it is... When you go to Nintendo game back then, you, you made it last. You had you know? to, yeah. You had to, because, man, and if you ever accidentally bought a dud, you felt like a complete ass. You were, like, really, really bummed out about it, because, you know, Deadly Towers had to last you several months. Yeah. Um, and it was awful. It was totally awful. But yeah, now it's like, why would you spend any time, any amount of time banging your head against anything when, you know, you bought three Humble Bundles if you haven't played any of the games in any of those? Or, I mean, another thing that I find amazing is that you can just go to, like, um, uh, Congregate or, uh, what's the, like, Armor Games? I don't know. Any of those Splash Portal, Newgrounds. And there, there are just amazing free games. You could just sit there from here to eternity just playing all these, like, rad Flash games that people have made for fun and put up for free, and you can just, like, check it out. It's just, like, it blows me away how much content is just readily available for everybody all the time. Like, it, it, and it does it's made the industry a lot weirder, I think, too. Yeah. It's a lot harder to, to compete and stand out and make sure that people actually want your thing right away when it's like at a decent price so that you can actually make some money off of it. Like, yeah. It's tough. It's, I mean, like there's weird. a lot of, a lot of um, angst among, especially among indie developers about how they can get attention for their games. And like at some point it's, it's like, there's just, we, we got enough games. Yeah. You know? It's just saturated, right? <laughs> and it's like, what it's, are we going to do? And it's only the cream that's going to rise to the top. And, Plenty of, and not all of it, like some of it will not rise to the top, even if it's really good, just for whatever reason. Timing, um, the theme like didn't resonate with enough people at the right moment because of this thing that happened in the news, like whatever. Like there's so many factors um, 
that's I think that's really hard. Like as a creator, sort of like like I've I've actually struggled with that a lot. Um, sort of like you know the success of your thing that you made, like detaching that from your success like as a person. Mm-hmm. Just like be really proud of the thing that you made, the thing that you did, the work that you did, um, and then you know reading that terrible review and just not taking it personally, just knowing that that person just has a different opinion. And I mean, also it might be correct. Like, you know, maybe you've thought about all those things that they wrote down in the review, but uh, scope, the time, the budget, the whatever, just like you just couldn't get to all of it. It can't be perfect. And when somebody calls out, calls it out, it really hurts, it sucks. But I mean, main opinions are a lot more valuable than positive ones. Like honestly, if you're going to grow as a designer, for sure. Right. And, and oftentimes, you know, if something doesn't work out, there's there's a lot of reasons why that that maybe it may have been may have been doomed to begin with, or maybe that it just you know it just needed more time, and there were just reasons why it turned out as it did. But you can learn from every project, right? Yeah. Um, and that's just yeah, it's something something you gotta go through. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna succeed as a designer, you gotta go through that process. It's really rough. That was a really really rough time for me, especially I remember like. Like, Brutal Legend was the first game that I was a designer on, right. like, credited, and, like, a part of it, too, was, like, the hype surrounding that game. And it was not, like, not like it is now, you know, like, with Destiny coming out and Call of Duty and GTA. It was, like, it's not like that, um, but it was a fraction of that, and that was still, like, amazing, and EA set the bar really high, and they were talking about how many units it could sell, and they, like, have this ad campaign around it and all this stuff, and then when it just, you know, not get universal praise like there were quite a few like negative reviews and that like yeah that like hit me really hard that was yeah that was not awesome but um what was the aspect of it that um that you felt what's the right way to put it um like what was your chair of that like was it how much of that was criticism of stuff you did directly or was criticism of stuff that was just kind of like the project just kind of got stuck with. Right? No, I think that it was like I worked on a lot of the um, the like RTS mechanics for right. that game, and that well, was a lot thing. of people. It was like kind of a shock, right? That would said so they that, didn't, they weren't expecting an RTS. So however good the RTS is, like, it was very hard. Like, to I ordered work. a hamburger, you, you know, gave me fish. Right? The big switch <laughs> aspect was was really hard, and that was like you know we had strict kind of like gag orders from EA marketing because they were like afraid that if people knew it was an RTS, they wouldn't buy it. That was weird. <laughs> that was a weird thing to experience because it was like, I was like, wait, like we can't lie to people about what, about the thing we made. Like we think it's pretty cool. Um, weird. So, and, and in the and there, were, there were some people who loved the RTS. Aspect. Yeah. Like that's so, the thing is that it's just I, like you didn't, but how do you communicate with, how do you find that audience, right? Like, how do you match up with them? Yeah. And it's like, I mean, the game legitimately had problems. We knew that it had problems, like, going out the door. Um, and we just kind of ran out of iteration time, especially, you know, particularly on the stuff that I worked on, like the RTF stuff. Um, it was also really difficult, like, plus, you know, it was my first, oh, I was, like, I was not the lead designer, but it was also, like, just my first time out. Like, right. I learned a ton working on that game. Um, but yeah, it was still like tough to like read the bad reviews and read people who yeah. felt like betrayed by the game, you know, sure. like, yeah. like RTS 
core or whatever. Like yeah. that was that was definitely strange. Um, well, let's let's back up a little so we can get to oh, yeah. how you got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, you played a lot of Nintendo growing up. Um, and then did you eventually move uh, through all the other generations? Like, yeah, move on to yeah, I Nintendo feel like and whatnot. definitely more of like a Nintendo kid. Like I never had a Genesis. Like I've kind of gone back and played a lot of those games later. Um, were you into like, what did you, what, what role did games play in your life? Like, I think that, like when I was a kid, I think it was a lot of like escapism, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, like I was like a nerdy kid. Um, and like my older brother was like this sports sports guy uh-huh. and I was like tried to be a sports guy but I was like pretty <laughs> bad at especially like he's like three years older than me sure. so there's like that he's gap as well he's yeah you know um and I just yeah I, I tried to like keep up in the sports realm and I just I don't know this is not I was not the worst I was not like you know right. last picked at recess or whatever but I just it was never like my calling you know so um, yeah, it was just from kind of being like a brainy kid, like a student kind of, you know, getting picked on sometimes and just like, I think it was mostly escapism. It was like a, um, like a safe space to retreat to. Did you, um, did you feel like did you played them creatively or were you playing them trying to be good at them? Or I, were you I, trying no, to it was as many games definitely like the, um. I think it was definitely like the like I want to beat the game, yep. you know, like like these are challenges that are being provided for me by Nintendo, and I'm gonna like try to like master them or try to beat them, you know. And it was definitely like get through one and then move on to the next one, you know, if you can. And I remember there were some real, man, there's some real, real tough games on that. Like if you like, I remember uh, Battletoads as a classic example. That game was hard as fuck. Like, oh my god, I don't think I, I came really close, but I don't think I ever actually finished Battletoads. And uh, Cobra Triangle, that's another, you ever played Cobra Triangle? It's a crazy, like, isometric um, game where you're, like, in a speedboat. I don't know, I think that might be another rare game. Um, really great game, but it's, like, it's, it's very difficult as well. I don't know if I ever did that. But, um, yeah, it was, in a, like, I played everything. Anything right. I could get my hands on. Did you rent games? Did yeah, games? I, I was a big time renter, which is like hilarious now, but you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> like, and I feel like I'm glad that we're sort of like through that, especially like indie games and like digital yeah. downloads and stuff. I feel like that's a great solution to the sort of like, like when I started in the industry, that was like definitely a big hot button issue of just like people who rent are like not putting money into the pockets of the people who make games and that's like really sure. bad for the industry and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I rented like religiously. I, mean, I was crazy was about a it. Huge part of the, the Nintendo system if you were a kid back then. Like, there was no way you could buy all. Yeah, the that was just like, how you were experiencing. And when you rented something on the weekend, you played, right? You played the <laughs> shit out of it. Played the absolute shit out of it. Yeah, I. Oh man, yeah, I totally rented everything. So I guess like it was mostly Super Nintendo generation, like through. Right near the end of like high school. If anything, that's what like I think a lot of the cheat codes, like maps that showed up in the end of Power Four, is like you know I'm going to rent you know Metroid for the weekend. Yep, and, like, and then try to like blast through it. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I was um, even through like like I think N64 was like maybe the last my last stand as like a hardcore Nintendo fanboy. Right, like, and then I just you know the PlayStation had a lot of 
had a lot of stuff, and I, I never really, plus that was, like, my poor college years or whatever, sure. so I never really, like, I just played sort of, like, the, the what you would consider to be, like, the classics of, like, the N64 generation, sure. and that was about it. I missed out on a lot of PS1 stuff, and then, um, Did you, but did, at that, when, where did you think games came from? That was the craziest thing. That's such a good question, because... Like, I always wanted to maybe make games or something. That was, like, but it was, like, a tiny little thought that was immediately crushed by, like, well, they just come from Japan. <laughs> they just, I mean, uh, they That's just one of the downsides Japan. of being heavy into the Nintendo. It's yeah. like this magical thing. Like, you get excited, like, and you read the credits, and you're like, what is yeah. this? You're like, what is, where did, yeah. So, it, like, it never really even entered my mind, yeah. you know? Or, yeah, I mean, I played Commodore and Amiga games mostly, and, like, so, you know, get a bunch of electronics, Arts games, like, these come from California. Yeah. You know, like, that's awesome. This is totally, like, it's actually something I can imagine, right? Yeah, I just, yeah, that's that's really interesting because I was definitely like, yeah, good games come from Japan. Like, <laughs> all games come, come from Japan was kind of the way that I thought about it. And so, yeah, even going into college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like, I'd never, like, I think I'd taken one programming class in high school, but um, right. the teacher was like a golfer. <laughs> not a, not the best programming teacher, but um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just know that was that was that the very beginning of your programming that class like you've never done it before. Yeah, yeah. So that was like senior year of high school. Wow. Okay. Was like like I hadn't really touched it at all, you know. And then um, had you been interested in it or you know I not really. I don't know. I've been you know mostly just like interested in games, like yeah. playing games as a player, and I wasn't super concerned with like where they came from or how they came up to be and stuff like it never really it's, weird. it's funny because I look at it now and it's just like man all this information is out there like it's, it just seems so rad that you can be I read this article about this 12 year old kid who's like uh, who made an iPhone game and sure. like his parents are homeschooling him now and he's like that's how he's like that's his education now, is, like, making iPhone games. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. Because um, there's all this, like, information out there, and, like, you can just, like, learn about it, and it's not a mystery anymore, like, how they made. Like, that's amazing. But back then, it was not it was not like that at all. It was just, like, a complete black box of an industry, and just, like, who knows? But, yeah, and a lot of the games over here were written in, like, assembly code, right? Which, like, is <laughs> that's a pretty big ask for a, you know... A kid um, <laughs> just jump into and start writing assembly code. Yeah, like moving registers around. Like, what are you? Holy crap! That's crazy. Um, I don't know, but yeah, then I I went into just like general engineering in college. What did you I think you were going to do when you were a senior in high school? I you know I had I I think probably the beginning of senior year I had no idea. Thought I was going to go to college. But that was it. Literally no <laughs> idea what I was going to do. Hopefully I will go to college. Yeah, and then near the end it was like okay, I guess I'll go into engineering because, like, my dad is an engineer. and right. like, that's There will be jobs. Yeah, and the guidance counselors are like, well, you're good at math and science, so you should sure. you should go into engineering. Like, all right, so I went into engineering. And, um, yeah, they have, like, a... Did you, did you dream of making games at all? Sort of, but like I said, it was like I had such a, um, a hater, you know, the, like... I forget what the term is for it, but it's basically like inside, like there's that voice in your brain that tells you you can't do something when you think of something you might want to do. Mm -hmm. 
that sounds like the worst explanation of that ever. But basically, it would be like, it would be like, oh yeah, like I could make games, and it's like, no, you can't make games. They come from Japan. You need to know somebody. <laughs> yeah, there's all this that's impossible. Like it's impossible. That's impossible. You can't do that. So it was like, all right, maybe I'll do something else. Whatever. Um, and I would, yeah, I remember being in engineering school, and then they make you take a bunch of like prereqs and a bunch of like sampler kind of things. And I think that I saw material science was like thing that was kind of seemed interesting, but I think what was interesting to me, I realized in retrospect, is that when they were telling me about it, they were talking about all this computer modeling they were doing for it, and I was like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think it was just like, I just like computers, and taking all these other engineering things, I was like, wow, like I hate physics, I hate chemistry, you know, I'm just like not, not good or interested in all these other things that are sort of like the backbone of engineering, but then, like, computer engineering... That's like, you know, which was, I don't know, very similar to computer science, the way that the program was. Um, but it was technically engineering. You kind of take some hardware stuff. Right. And hardware stuff is awful. Um, <laughs> learning about transistors and yeah. all this other stuff was, man, really not for me. Um, but it took a lot of programming classes, and I was like, oh, that's fine. And so I just thought I would kind of maybe get, like, a programming gig, just try to work out on a database at a bank or something. I don't know. Really boring, and I think it was like depressing. Right, right. This is probably gonna be my life. Yeah, I'd be like, I guess I would just do that. I'll just, you know, get a job at a corporation, and you know, like, um, Compuware is in Michigan. Like, yeah, maybe I'll work for Compuware. I don't even know what they make. Um, (laughs) sounds like they make software. Yeah, they make software (laughs) for sure. Um, Compuware. Just like, there's a box of software. (laughs) Amazing name. Such an amazing name for a company. It's like computers. Software. Yeah, it sounds like a coin coined around 1982. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, you know, man, there was probably no whiteboard conversation about that. It was just like the guy thought, what if I combine the word computer and software together, go to lunch, <laughs> that's it, you know? And, um, but yeah, it was really not, not until like the end of college where I was like, um, I was in the software engineering class and with some other guys that played games, and we had to do like a semester-long project, and we were like, we had taken this like crappy graphics class, like with like really just rudimentary OpenGL stuff at the time, and it was just kind of like, you know, like what if we just made a game for our project? We literally had no idea what we were doing, like none. There was no no resources for like how would you actually do this? This was probably in '98, something like that. Like yeah, there's literally nothing. Nothing that would tell you how to even begin doing this, and like our professor didn't know. And there, yeah, was it started with on PC or Unix? Yeah, it was on it was on it was on PC. Okay. And um, yeah, we were just like, okay, and we picked we taken the OpenGL class, so we're like, it'll, I guess it'll be three D, and we picked like the um, Tron Light Cycle kind of game, really? you know, like as our like. That'll be like our default, because it's simple, right? That's, you know, really, like, that's really funny, because I mean, as you were telling this, I was like, yeah, so I took a graphics class back in school, it would have been about 99, yeah. and I was, it was OpenGL, like an OpenGL game, and I made a, a Tron like Did you really? That's amazing! <laughs> oh my god, it was obviously in the same generation. Because um, it's, it's like totally the, yeah, it's the, perfect, it's perfect like the easiest yeah, thing yeah. that you can do in 3D, I think, because yeah. it's like it's technically a 2D game. Did you do it was a multiplayer? Or it was it was local multiplayer. And like it was, multiple machines? Or no, 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 no. One machine. Oh, no, no. Yeah, one machine, one machine, and it was like a one-on-one kind of like duel. Oh yeah, just watching on the screen at the same time. Yeah, 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 and um, yeah, and it actually like worked. 
that was the thing. It was like, it, it blew us away that we worked on it for like months. Yeah. And it was like, oh, the, I remember the best thing. This was insane. Um, we didn't know anything about like three uh, tools okay. to make content. Right? Sure. And the trails were procedural and the board was procedural. And the okay. walls were procedural. But we needed something for like the ship or the cycle or whatever it is, yeah. you know, and we didn't want to copy Tron. So we like, we're like, but how do we actually make a piece of 3D geometry? How do we do that? And one of the guys was like, I'll just do it. Don't worry about it. And he actually, he like drew it on graph paper. Uh, and then he like hand entered. input entered all of the coordinates to like actually draw the polys for this shit. It was, it was really low poly, right? It was really low poly. But like seeing it, it was just like, Here's this mess of data, and there was just a function. It's probably not how games are made. No, yeah, <laughs> and we were, like, we were like, there's no way that people would do this, but like, we're, uh, let's just whatever, it'll work, right? And we did it, and it worked, and it was just like. I remember, I made mine was my my bikes were just a circle that turned. Okay, yeah, that <laughs> because I, I mean, can make that, I can make yeah, that, right? Yeah, you could just like instantly do that, and it's, <laughs> and it's more about the game. But we were like, no, 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 like this is a longer, like yeah. semester long thing. We should try to actually work on our production values or whatever. And, um, yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Like, like there was a draw ship function. It was just a huge... We went through all these coordinates. <laughs> it was just a huge... And it was just hard-coded into the function. Just, like, you know, oh, telling the actual coordinates for where you should draw these polys and, like, put the thing together. It was totally absurd. But, um... How did it look? It looked fine, I guess. I mean, it looked terrible, I guess. Like, you know, by any modern standard, even at the time, it looked bad. But... Um, but it was, it was a fully playable game. Like we had a title screen. We had like, you know, we, it was like fully playable. It was awesome. We even put in like, uh, we had like power ups and some like extra shit uh, sure. in the game that actually turned out to be pretty cool. But like, I would, I feel like there's a super fancy light cycle game out there. The one thing that we did that was, uh, it turned out to be real terrible was, um, you could hit a button. So you had like just left, right turning. Uh -huh. um, so everything was like relative to your, your little ship there. Uh, and we put another button in there that would let you instantly pop uh, up to another level. So there were two Tron boards stacked on top of each other, and you could pop up or down amongst them. And so you're making these like big like L shapes almost. Like uh -huh. <laughs> it made it fucking impossible to play. <laughs> Because you'd be like battling, and then the other guy would like hop upwards and then go around and sort of like. Well, they were traditional, like in the future, they'll play 3D chess. You know? <laughs> That's right. It was, right. So much it, was, it was totally like that. We're like, we're like, oh, this will be way better than like regular <laughs> life cycles. Like, man, what if there were two? The classic back? thing in all game design. We have one thing. What if we what had, if two, we had things? two things? What if we stapled them together? And they, it was really bad. Oh man. Um. Yeah. So, but that was. I. I think that that was the the real beginning of like. Yeah. Okay, I, I could, like somebody has to do this for a living. They obviously, you know, um, uh, Western games were becoming more of a thing. At least, like, that's weird because, you know, if you were into the Commodore or the Amiga or whatever, like, Western games were kind of always a thing. If you were, like, an Ultima kid or whatever, right. like, yeah, like, Western games were always a thing. But definitely being more of a console gamer, like, I feel like around that era, that's when Western games sort this of... Was, this was the after explosion of Doom. Yes, yes, yes. So this was like where there was Starcraft was coming out. There was a real like competition now. Like like Western games and Eastern games are equals at least, you know. And it um and it was like yeah, like there are a lot of companies that are sprouting up and and like this seems like it could really be a real thing, you know. You can actually do this. Um, 
there was one professor that was like, he was like the AI professor at, at University of Michigan, and he was like really into games, and he had written this Quake bot in mm-hmm. his, uh, his like AI language that he championed and stuff. And so I did like an independent study with him. I took his AI class and I kind of like schmoozed my way into this like independent study where right, I don't sure. what I did. But it was really like he had some connections and he hooked me up with his internship at High Voltage Software, which is actually still around. It's in Chicago, yeah. Chicago suburbs. Um, and yeah, I had like an internship. Like, what were they making at the time? They were making, what were they working on? I was, they were writing a new engine for, PS2 era stuff that was, yeah, they were writing a new engine. So I was working on like UI code for their like generalist engine that they're called Atlas. Atlas. Um, but let's see, they were working on the skateboarding game that got canceled. They were working on some ports of football games. And what the hell else were they doing? Definitely like work for Hire Studio, very, very solid, very stable work for hire studio did a bunch of stuff they did oh i remember too their animation department was working on the like uh the stuff that would go on the jumbotron during the chicago bowl game <laughs> you know just like i don't know it's just like random computer graphics yeah, we got our contract. Right? yeah it's like yeah. yeah um and uh yeah it was it was that was a really cool experience though um working at that place and like just kind of learning like a lot about how games are actually professionally made and like, what did you What did oh, you yeah, think like on your first day? Like, what, what did you? I I was I felt so in the deep end. Like, yeah. oh my god, I moved to Chicago just for the summer, you know. And I was like, um, I was roommates with another programmer there, um, and that was like really weird. Like, just I didn't have a bed, you know. Like, <laughs> I, I had to sleep on an air mattress for three months, and just like it was a weird experience. Like, and I was, was it an internship or it, yeah, I was an internship. Okay. Yeah, so it was like over the summer. And wow, that yeah, that was a really weird experience. And I felt completely in the deep end. And yep. I think they threw away everything I did you know, <laughs> afterwards. But there were like three or four interns that were all kind of like working together on sure. stuff. Um, and there and our manager guy was really cool, and he was like super super helpful. And we were like putting together like widgets for their kind of like homegrown UI system, you know. So I worked on like drop down boxes and radio buttons and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, code, it was like being a coder eight hours a day for the first time. And it was weird. Um, did you, I mean, a lot of the beginning, um, programming you work with your entry the ever programmer in the games industry is not necessarily fundamentally different than what you do. If you were like, you just join a company that makes spreadsheets, right. You know, or something like that. Right. Like, um, but did you, was it enough that it was involved with the games? Yeah, like, was it, it, or was it the atmosphere, or like? What? I think it was more. It was more just like the working with or talking to other people on other teams, seeing the things that they're doing. Yeah. You know, being super impressed by like the just the you know seeing the art pipeline, just like you know just looking at stuff that was not necessarily happening at my desk, and and the atmosphere. Like for you know, if I was like. How old was I? 20, 21, something like that. Just, you know, everybody's like a hardcore gamer that's working there. And they're all, you know, I remember Diablo 2 came out while I was there. Yeah. And they're all like, you know, going to pick it up at lunch and like playing at lunch and stuff. And it, so for sure, like the atmosphere was really awesome. 
Like, yeah. just that these are people who care about making games. Yeah. They love games. A huge thing that your social circle totally becomes a bunch of people who are also interested in games, right? Yeah. Like, it, yeah, it I think concentrate. I think there's a lot of people who could have easily gone many different directions in their life, but once they, if they do get that first job at a game company, like, you know, you, you kind of double down on that, yeah. right? Like, yeah. it becomes your life. Yeah, and I feel like I had kind of started to, like, fall out of it a little bit, yeah. I think, near the end of college, like, where I wasn't playing as many games. Yeah. Part of it's just being poor. Like, when you're being poor in college, you don't really have money to, like, throw at video games. But, like, I remember pirating a lot of stuff, um, you know, near the end of college. But it just, also just with school, and I did marching band. I was in collegiate marching band. And so I just, like, I just did not have, like, a what lot of time. What did you play? I played saxophone. Oh, okay. So, saxophone. Within the band, you were the cool kid. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. I don't know. Oh, I mean, man, to me, that's how the saxophone people all came across. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how cool a saxophone really is. Um, but it was, yeah, that was... So that it's was, all a comparative scale. You just, oh, yeah, and that was a blast. I really liked doing that, and that was, um, I don't know. Yeah, what a, that was a weird time. It was a weird time, like, like getting that gig, and then... Uh, so I think that was... I think I was in school for four and a half years, so I had a lot of semester left after, like, that internship. Came back, like finished school, and then I was like, "Oh shit!" Now I need to like get a real job. They were gonna hire me back, but I didn't necessarily want to go back. I can't remember exactly why. I think that like some dude got fired that was pretty high up in the company, and like the way that they kind of didn't really talk about it was really awkward and weird. And I just a lot of people were like kind of unhappy about how it was being run and stuff. And I knew that I was kind of only experiencing the tip of the iceberg right. as well. So I was like, I wonder how weird that company actually is. I don't know. I like looked around for other stuff, but you know, most of it's out here. Yep. Um, and I just, I, I was not really ready to move. And then I kind of lucked out where uh, Outrage was right in Ann Arbor, like right where I went to school. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I like sent them my resume and they were like, yeah, we're actually looking for entry level coders like you know come on in for an interview I'm like sweet um they were right across the street from where I was staying <laughs> like like I had roommates and stuff and I was like it was like 303 East Liberty and like my address was 330 East Liberty I was like this is crazy I can like see if they, they've been in that building this whole time you know so I like went over there for the interview and it was just awesome like it was um smaller group of people, like, mm -hmm. only working on a couple of games, and I actually really hated Descent. <laughs> like, okay. you play Descent, like, Descent made me really sick, like, 3D games don't make me sick, but sure. Descent kind of made me sick, because it's all, like, it was a pretty fast game, six right? degrees of freedom, yeah. you know, you can, like, spin upside over. down or sideways or whatever, and it was really fast-paced and stuff, um, and I just could not play those games, so I was like, oh man, if they're working on Descent 4, I don't even know if I can take job it, they offered to me but I went there and they were working on like character action games for consoles they were like switching their whole business it was awesome you know like like getting to work on games that are more like the ones that I really like playing and it was awesome so yeah so that was like started kind of like PS2 Xbox One generation and like they hired me I, I don't think I was experienced enough even for, like, I don't think I knew enough for that. But, you know, it was an entry-level gig, and there's a lot of, like, learning on the job and stuff. So, yeah, they, like, hired me, and I worked in, also there, like, I was not working on sexy stuff right away. I was working on, like, the exporter, you know, 
Tools programmer. Tool programmer. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> nobody wants to That's do it. That's what you hire people for. Yeah. And it was like, okay, like I'm working on like, you know, animation exporter and like learning Maya and like how that works and stuff. And um, that was like really getting thrown in the deep end. That was really, really tough. Cause, and also there's like no end in sight. That was another like really hard adjustment that I think that, I think that people don't talk about that aspect enough of like going from this like sort of full-time school summer job kind of thing going yeah. into like, Hey, guess what? Like you're going to work for the rest of your life. Until you retire ready. And you're just like, what? <laughs> like there's just, you know, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no like, Oh man, there's, it's just a weird feeling. Like once you get, you know, I don't know, well past that three month mark, like the six or nine month mark, you're just like, wow, this is not ending. Right. You just need to cope with it. But, Still got a job. Yeah, still got a job, and I'm getting paid, and it's like, yeah, supposedly no was sweet. Like, there's a lots of cool things about it, but yeah, like working on that stuff, it was it was really rad. Like, I loved the. There were two games that they were working on. Um, one was called Rubu Tribe, which ended up getting canceled, but that was Interplay was funding that one, who had also funded the design games. Um, right. And yeah, there was this game called Rubu Tribe. It was basically like uh, Flintstones meets Oddworld meets Zelda mm-hmm. 64. So it was like, it was like this crazy ambitious game where like you were this little kind of tribal society. You were like this dude exploring this big world and like there was this big giant like elephant like creature that had a huge house on its back and it was all about like ex- escorting this like giant creature through these environments and trying to like get stuff out of its way and like protect it. And it was, Crazy ambitious game, crazy. Um, but I got hired to work on the other one, which was called uh, Alter Echo. Um, with Gate uh, Two was funding that one, and that one actually did ship. And I was the the second programmer hired for that game. So I worked on it almost almost from the very beginning to the very end of it, like three year project or something like that. I'm afraid I've actually haven't heard of it. No, 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 nobody's heard of the game. It's awesome. <laughs> I always make a joke whenever I like speak to do like a public speaking thing. I always make a joke where I'm like, if you if you played this game, like, like I will buy you a drink. Like, I will come talk to me after this, and I will totally buy you a drink. Because what was, what it's like a, um, it's a, it's a brawler. It's like a third person brawler, kind of similar to Devil May Cry in okay. structure, but visually it's like really weird. It's like a sci-fi game where like everything lo- looks like it's made out of like molded plastic, and the colors are like really psychedelic. And there's lots of like bright oranges and purples and pinks and. It has a unique look, for sure. Like, I, it's it's a crazy looking game, and um, the hook of the game is that you could morph between three different characters, sort of have a suit that's made out of this glass substance that can like morph itself. And so you're kind of like a dude, a human with a sword, and you can morph into like this huge kind of walking tank with a gun, and then you can morph into this like quadruped looking frog guy that can like climb on walls and turn invisible and stuff. Um, and the, the combat was, was meant to be sort of inspired by, um, like, Tony Hawk, where it's all about stringing these combos together and stuff. And so I did, um, like, after I had kind of done a lot of cool stuff, uh, I showed a really interest in, like, player controls and, like, um, just player-facing stuff. Sure. Just raw gameplay code. And so they gave me a shot at that, and I was, like, the main player programmer for that whole game. And it was, it was awesome. Like, cool. it was really cool, like, like taking getting the morphing stuff to work within the combo system and, like, getting combo system to work. How, did, how was there, what type of, were there designers on that project? Or, like, how did it Yeah, work? there was there was only one designer, so I felt like I got um, 
very similar to Double Fine, where we have just very few design resources. It's a lot of like gameplay programmers filling in the gaps. Like, like so you did, but you did stuff by necessity. Yeah, yeah, it's like like taking one sheets and like filling in the gaps because there's just like you know the lead designer's got other stuff to worry about. So while you implement it, you get to like get your own license of like a lot of things. Like that's pretty cool. I really like that part of it. That part of the job was like instantly like a huge hook. You know, right. just that these are player facing things that I'm doing. You can I can do I can do some work and it has a tangible effect on the actual player experience. Like. Like I do this thing, I know it's gonna make it better, and I play the game better. Like sweet, that's, you know, and then that just—it's just like this positive feedback loop that just makes you want to work harder and yep. longer hours, and you know, whatever to make it as good as possible. Um, it's awesome. I love that job. I totally <laughs> love that job. Also, really close knit group of dudes working on that uh, that game and uh, both games really. Um, but yeah, then the interplay game got canned. Interplay went out of business, yeah. so that that game. Uh, got canceled, um, and that was for sure the bigger game too. But good thing about that is that then basically the whole studio focused on this other game on Alter Ego. Uh, and then you know I don't really know what happened. Like there was some financial issue, whatever. And two, <coughs> they acquired us, and then we finished the game out. And so that like man, that should be um, that should be like the best day of any, you know, anyone who starts in the, in the games industry, like that should, that's like one of your, the best day you can have, like the day that your first project shifts, you know, like, like we, we had our like, oh, it's going gold, sweet, um, meeting, and uh, the guy who ran that company, Matt Toshley, like, he's one of the best dudes, I don't know if you've ever met him, he's amazing, he's like, super great, he worked at um, Working Glass and Parallax, super smart programmer, amazing, amazing dude, ran that company, and he, like, called this meeting, and everybody's, like, you know, we thought that this was going to be, like, the last day, like, whatever, and it's, like, sweet, like, you know, gold, we're shipping it off to HQ, you know, it's going into CERT, awesome, great job, and then bad news, like, we're, HQ is going to the studio, (laughs) we're, like, what, it was crazy, it was, like, super high high, that's an old story, I'm afraid for a lot of games, Yeah. yeah, Oh, man. It was a bummer. But, it's um, a rough way to start. Yeah, it's, I mean, it was, like, it was weird, because it was, like, you know, it was, like, three years in or something. So it wasn't, like, yeah. I had just worked there for ten months, and then we shipped, and I got right. shut down. So um, I don't know if that made it better or worse, honestly. But at least we got to ship the game, and, like... What were your expectations? Like, what did you think was going to happen? That was crazy. That was crazy. We actually had an internal... So, I mean, were you, I mean, were you, like... I mean, both for, like, how you, what did you hope for the game, and then what did you hope for, like, the video? So, so, like, the game, I thought it was pretty good. Like, I didn't think it was as good as, I think the Devil May Cry was either about to come out or had come out already right. or something. I didn't think it was as good as that game or as polished as that game. Was like, eh. But I thought the core, the gameplay core was pretty good, and it had a unique look, and maybe that could go either way, you know? I wasn't really assuming that it would sell a bunch, but... I also wasn't even really thinking about like the financial aspect of the right. studio and like, oh, if this doesn't sell, like we're fucked. Like right. I, just, I, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about that, you know, like primarily because this other thing, like what I thought for the studio, we had this internal, um, like game 
nine contests or something. Mm -hmm. Like, what are we going to do next? Like, you know, cool. And it was like a bunch of different people like submitted, um, like design docs and stuff and and ideas and pitched them. Uh, and we went to the top three and and we were going to present them to THQ. I had a plane ticket to go out to Calabasas and like pitch it to the THQ headquarters and like, um, it was like, I was so fucking excited, you know, that we had this game that was like, oh, what is it called? Like, we didn't have a really good name for it. I think it was just called The Shade. But it was basically like, like, like open world GTA in Gaslight London where you're this guy who's been like murdered but has come back as like this weird shadow person and can like, it was basically like GTA for people was the idea. That you could you could jump in and possess people oh. in in a sort of Jack the Ripper London okay. kind of setting. It was like oh, it's like this you know this could maybe be a real cool game, whatever. This was post GTA. It was post GTA, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was like oh yeah, this you know this maybe this worked. We had tickets and yeah, that was it. They were no like we didn't. So go. They didn't even wait to see how the game sold. <laughs> no, right? no, just, no, they didn't. They were just um, they just finished. It's rough it when you know that like it's. They, you know, their mind had probably made up months and months ago, and they're just months and months waiting ago. for you to yeah. wait for you to give them that that disc, and then <laughs> yeah, right, because they just wanted to you know like make up as much as they could of the investment and hopefully make some money back off of it or whatever. So yeah, that was I mean, uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, over. it's if you have to let people go, like unfortunately, that's the time when you do it. Like I mean, it's and it was there's not really a way around that. Like, I've never talked. Awesome. I've never talked to Matt about <laughs> it. Just because, like, I was, like, so green at the time. I don't know. But, like, looking back at it now with more experience, I feel like he probably made some decisions because we had a lot of people that were green, like, the yeah. time. I think he made a lot of decisions to just, like, get that game done. Right. So that the people who are green could have that on their resume yeah. and just be, like... It's something to at least ship a game. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of people who've been in our industry for a long time and yeah. ship a shipping game. And, and it was also, I remember when I was first starting, it was definitely, like... It was like it was like being like a made man in the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> like, like like if you shipped a game, that was like your golden ticket to like get another gig. It was like then companies will look at your resume. Yeah, you know. yeah, and it was like if you don't have a ship game, like good luck. You know, right. it was like uh, and so yeah, I was really grateful that we were able to like finish it. You know? Yeah, and um, and yeah, move on. I so, don't know. So what happened then? Oh, uh, I went on like an interview circuit, and yeah. it was the worst. Um, where did you apply? I hated it. Uh, I applied where at did you interview? this place in Seattle called Cranky Pants. Okay. That was um, weird. That was the interview went pretty okay, but um, their guy, their guy totally lowballed me, and I called him out for it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, I just talked about, and I not even just kind of sheepishly being like, oh, but you know, I'm making this right now, and you know, cost of living in Seattle is more than in Arbor, and so. I don't know. I think that I should deserve more. And he kind of like yelled at me. <laughs> kind of like yelled at me a little bit. And I felt really weird about taking that job. And it was also a good time. Country, mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, I don't know about this. Um, and then uh, I interviewed at Sammy mm-hmm. San Diego, which was, they went on to become High Moon yeah. after they got dropped. And that was probably one of the worst experiences my career because they um they whiteboarded me really hard and I completely choked I completely choked the whiteboard and that's like 
That was, and that was, I think that was the time where I was like, maybe I don't want to be a programmer. <laughs> I was like, maybe I don't want to be a programmer because I just think that's so hard. They actually, um, they handled it so poorly too, looking back on it. Like, what were they testing you on? It was, I mean, it was just like general programming yeah. stuff, you know, it was, it was stuff that you would it's ask. It's hard me. to do it under pressure. Yeah. And I, and I really cracked like under the pressure and it was like stuff that I really knew, you know, it's yeah. like, like, um, I don't know, it was like vector projection you know, like, like reflecting a bullet off the wall, like, uh, I don't know, there was flying stuff. Like there was this stuff that I had done that I should have been able to conjure up and do on a funny board and I just like completely failed. And it was, uh, it was the morning and it was supposed to be an all day interview. They did, they did the thing where like they put me in a cab after the morning interview, after the morning <laughs> session, they were just like, all right. And, uh, we'll let you know, you know, and it was just like, did they give you lunch? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> And, um, right there. it was really, it was really awful. Actually that like, I actually, um, I remember I just went to the airport. Should I call you? And or? got on standby <laughs> and just got the fuck out of there because it was like, Oh, that was w one of the worst experiences of my career. That one. But then I also interviewed at, um, at Raven uh -huh. at, in Wisconsin and that's where I ended up taking a job. Okay. Like they were, they were awesome. Like I really like, and it's close to the Midwest, like very similar town to Ann Arbor. And I was, yeah. Yeah, working on XM Legends, that, that might be kind of cool to, like, work on a licensed game. Especially after just working on, like, original IP. Like, maybe it's cool to work on a licensed game. Uh, it's not cool to work on a licensed game. That's what I learned, is that there were so many, like, people. Yeah. A lot of fingers. Yeah, a lot of fingers in the pot. And it was just like, eh. But I really like the people there. Um, really like the place. Uh, yeah, it was an awesome place. But I, I had also applied to Double Fine. I was like, oh, that I would love to work. There, that seems awesome, and they've been working on Psychonauts for like a year or two. How come? No, so how come you haven't applied to Double Fine? Is it? Were, did you play like Grim Pandango and LucasArts games? I think and, like, I saw what was the deal. I saw a Psychonauts write up, and I was like, oh, that's a super game. And I had played Full Throttle. Okay. Love Full Throttle. That's one of my favorite games. I played Full Throttle. Played Data Tentacle. I was like, I and and I played Maniac Mansion, but that was more around the original. Like, but um. Yeah, like I had. Because you hadn't mentioned really adventure games. No, I. It's weird. Point. They were kind of. I feel like I kind of had played only the Lucas ones, yeah. and you know those were really the ones that I liked. I didn't really like the Sierra ones. They weren't really like my. They weren't like my favorite games, mm -hmm. but like Full Throttle, I played, I played Full Throttle with my dad, um, and it was I just really liked the setting. Yeah. Like, I just think that that game is fucking amazing. Like. I think it's just an achievement, and uh, so that I, I would say that that is one of my favorite games. Um, but even though adventure games are like not, you know, as a genre, like my favorite thing, um, and I remember seeing like this write up about Psychonauts, and I was like, "What? Like, awesome! Like, I'll apply there." And I, yeah, I didn't hear anything from them. And uh, but one of my buddies from Outrage got a job here as an effects artist, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool." And then I'd only been at Raven for a little bit. And he was sort of like, hey, they need gameplay programmers. No, they need gameplay programmers. And I was like, I just took the job. You know, it's like, I just took the job, like, a couple months ago. Like, can't, I don't know. He's like, he's like, well, I gave them your resume, so cool. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, it turns out they had it, and it just got lost or something. But they really need gameplay people, and, like, I think you really like So, um, so yeah, they actually called me up, and, like, I did a phone interview, and it came out, and it was just amazing. I mean, you know, it's like, I don't know how old I was, 25 or something, right. and I got to, like, 
come, they flew me out to San Francisco, hung out, got to, like, meet Tim Schaefer, hang out, like, part of my interview is just, like, hanging out in Schaefer's office, like, <laughs> talking to him about Full Throttle and shit, so that was, like, amazing, like, I was totally sold, and they offered me the job, and I was, like, and it was, like, a good, and it was, like, a, a pay bump as well, I mean, part of that was San Francisco for sure, but I was, like, oh, uh, and I told, I remember I was, like, okay, I'm definitely gonna do it. Um, and I went in and told the, told my manager and I just felt like a total heel. I just felt like a total heel. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to just go do this because, you know, I can't write. It's funny that you say he's at the time was that I felt like I had more of a track into the design than I did at Raven. Because right. Raven was very much the, um, they had a lot of designers at Raven, but sort of the like, People refer to it as like the Texas style of game design, where it's like all the uh, shooters and like it software. It's like right. they're all level designers. That's what they are. Right. They're like all level designers. Um, they make content. They make content, and they're the designers of the game. And there's like the lead designer who might work on the other mechanics and stuff, but it's mostly like content stuff. And so all the all the quote unquote designers were all like level builders. And I'm like, you know. Like, you don't have any real scripters or, you know, they're kind of doing the scripters through the tool. And I was like, I, you know, I don't see the path to design here, whereas I see it more um, at this level, which is kind of cool. Cause that actually, that actually you say, worked out. You'd say that was what you told them. Is that what you actually thought? I, I hoped. It was more of a hope than like knowing, you know, because um, I really like the approach to gameplay programming here where it's like, you're kind of like 75% programmer, 25%. I think it's what a gameplay programmer means. At double um, and, and that your was, friend told you that. I mean, is that how you believed uh, it? Or? He told me that, but it was also really obvious just talking to people, yeah. like like doing the interview out here and just talking to them about like what they're actually doing and like the fact that there's only there's there's Tim and then a lead designer and then that's the whole design team for like a huge game like Psychonauts. Like that doesn't make any sense. So, right. um, yeah, it was kind of like this intuition of like, oh yeah, that's you know that they're they're maybe later there'll be more design opportunities with. Uh, and I, I told them at Raven, and they were like, "Okay." And I was like, "I'd like to work my two weeks or whatever." And they're like, "They're like, actually, tomorrow will be the last day." Yeah. And I was like, "What?" I was like, "Oh, okay." And they're like, "No, no, no. We would love for you to stay and work two more weeks, or whatever." They're like, "But I got that gig through a recruiter." And they're like, "If you stay for ninety days, uh, we have to pay the recruiter the referral fee." <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, "We're gonna get like, out of here. We're just gonna get you out of here. Tomorrow's your 89th day." So. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay. No, she told them that. Yeah, I was like, right. If you I, told them on the 91st day, 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 oh, man, that would have been the worst. Because I didn't even, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't even counting days or whatever, but they were they were on top of it. Um, oh, that is pretty short. It's really <laughs> short. It's really short. I felt so bad. And that's why, like, you know, once I had been here for, I don't know, two years, three years, then I felt like, okay, about it. And now I've been here, like, almost 11 years. So it's like, it's fine. I know it was the right move. Um it worked out, and that makes it feel like less bad. Yeah, but sometimes, yeah. sometimes you have to do the thing if it's like really, really important. Yeah, yeah, and like I'm glad I tried it. Like it was, I mean, it, it worked out. But even if it hadn't, like I think that it was better for me to actually take more of a risk, you know, because that was one thing of going to Raven. Like it was like moving to uh, from one college town to another college town. Yep. It, it, just, it felt like I was kind of staying still a little bit, and whereas it felt like much more of like a crazy adventure kind of thing, you know, like a big risk. Um, almost didn't pay. 
kind of hated it here at first. <laughs> I kind of did, yeah. It's so different. The double Fine or San Francisco? Um, man, I liked Double Fun right away, but then we immediately ran into trouble. Yeah. Double Fine just had a... Almost immediately. Up and down existence. And that, like, that part was really tough because I felt um, like our previous person... I, I just I got the impression that like things were going great and that the game was really far along and yeah. it was like three months from ship. And I think I worked on it for like it was like eighteen months at least before yeah, I think it was a year and a half, maybe two years from when I got here that it actually shipped. Wow. So that was like crazy. And yeah, and like their financial thing. I mean I think it was fine. Because like Ed Freeze was the dude who was at Microsoft who was yeah. like like really backing the company and just like really believed in like what Tim was doing and all this stuff. And he left. And then the dude that came and replaced him, Shane Kim, I think, um, he just like was like, what? And just in all these projects that like, that were kind of floundering, you know, rather than like double down and like, like overfund them, he just like hatcheted a bunch of stuff. And we were one of them. And that was like really depressing that I come all the way out here for this thing. And that wasn't, you know, I hadn't even six months or whatever. Run this, this trouble and whatever. Yeah, I tend to ramble a lot. No, that's that's fine. The shit is like what is the podcast for? Can't ramble. <laughs> I yeah, it's weird. I I don't um I don't know through all this two player stuff. I've definitely like gotten more <laughs> comfortable just like rambling about myself and whatever. It makes me feel it still makes me feel pretty weird though. Mm-hmm. Like just to be like, yeah, I, let I me tell I, you something else. Yeah, I mean I hope it doesn't come across as like I'm so fucking great. Here's why I'm so great. It's like no, it's just like this is this is like I think it's a pretty weird story. Like I think everybody's got their own weird story of yeah. like how they got where the hell they are. Um, yeah, I don't know. It also makes you realize like how long it's been. I guess yeah. that's the other thing that's kind of kind of weird about it. There's just like all these steps. Well, getting here. I think it's interesting. You get to a point where you can look back and try to. You kind of have your own narrative for how you got to where you were, and you kind of go through it step by step. You realize like some of your decisions were sometimes just kind of random, and like yeah, the right thing happened for yeah. no apparent reason. And it's I, crazy. Like, like why did I think? Why did I make? Why did I think? What did I think I was doing? Why did I make that decision? Yeah. It's weird, but it all kind of adds up to get yeah. you where you are. I mean, for, for you, it seems like going double fine worked out really well. Um, but uh, it was like the best. Yeah. Like, it was the best. I, I, um, part of it is that I'm like super shocked when I examine it. And I'm like, like going to PAX now is like mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Some random person, like, Stand packed and it's like, hey, you're Brad Muir. Like, I like your game. Thanks. Like, can I take a picture with you? Like, what? <laughs> can I get your autograph? Like, I'm giving people my autograph. Like, I literally never thought that would happen. And so, the fact that that's happened like more than once is, it's, it blows me away. Like, I feel like I've already gotten to the peak or whatever, you know? Sure. Like, I, I feel like if I had, you know, if, I don't know, if all the technology blew up and we could never make video games. Were again. you, so when you joined Double Fine, did you, did you hope that one day you'd be leading no, games? No. You I just like, wanted to be working for a cool game I company. just wanted to be working for a cool game company. Just like, just want to like, be a better programmer, like, work on some cool stuff, 
maybe get to be a designer yeah. and, and sort of do this kind of like hybrid uh, programming design kind of thing and then maybe full-time design and then maybe one day be a lead designer for somebody else and then retire. Like, I think that that was like, you know, that would be as good as it gets, you know? Um, yeah, and that's funny because like looking at it, you know, that experience at, um, at Outrage, like I was like, fucking ready to do it, man. Like, we had, you know, ready to be a lead or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you were ready to pitch a project, right? I, but I didn't know what the hell I was doing, yeah. you know? Like, like, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that that whole thing was a pretty big blow. Like, I just sort of lost a lot of faith in the ability to jump rungs on the ladder or something. And I was just like, ah, you know, like, like I was... You didn't want to hope for it at that point? Yeah, yeah. I think I just didn't want to hope for it because that stuff had been, like, Dash so savagely, you yeah. know. The thing is, if you're a, if you're a programmer, but not a programmer who is really like wanting to be on the cutting edge for graphics, or is like super into how you know how code is optimized or how yeah. projects are structured, but like what you care about is user experience. That means you want to be a design, right? You know, like right. that's just going to be in your bones, yeah. right? And that was, I think, that was the realization that I was having was that like. You know, coding is a means to an end. Exactly. It's like it's like how I get what I want, how I get something to be fun, something to be cool, like whatever. Like that's like how I can contribute to that thing actually happening. Um, yeah, I, I really wish the, the I don't know who is responsible for pushing that, but if that message got pushed more, right? Like that's what yeah. makes programming cool is yeah. that you know you can you can create experience. You know, for for a player. Yeah. You know, and uh, and it's weird though because that I, that's not the only message. It's for sure that people that love graphics or whatever. Well, there's lots of cool things you do with programming. Yeah, right? yeah. But like if what you you know if you want to make this computer create this experience for a player, like learn how to program. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's. I definitely push people towards. There are a lot of people that ask me for advice. Like, what? How do I break into the industry? How do I do this? Whatever. I never know what to say to the people that, because usually I'm like, go to a four-year college, enjoy, <laughs> like, have a good time, because that's what college is for, um, and, like, learn how to be an artist, learn how to be a programmer. Like, I just think that that's, like, the best way in, because you'll learn how the games are put together. Yeah. I, I just feel like a lot of people want a shortcut right to being a designer, right to being a lead. I, I, I don't know how you, it's really hard. Like, I don't, I don't know what that really means. Like, Without even knowing how they're put together, like, I, it doesn't mean anything. Like, I don't understand. Like, you have to, you have to crawl before you can walk kind of thing. And it's just like, yeah, the one, the people that I don't know what, how to respond to them are the ones that say, well, I've tried to learn on a program. I can't do it. I have no art talent whatsoever. Yeah. But I, like, want to be in the industry. I want to make games. I'm just like, boom. You know, it sort of, it strikes me as the, like, oh, but I have such great ideas. It's like, everybody's got great ideas, you know? Like, just, you have to, like, you have to bring something more to the table than ideas. It's, everybody's got those. So, what what can you do? Production is the only thing that I've, like, pushed people towards. Be like, I guess you can get in through QA. You can do QA for a while and then kind of be a, you know, associate producer and then be a producer and then, that you know, you'll sort of, like, by osmosis, it's almost like learn how they're put together and like do it organically, but like that's several years of, of work, I think. The problem is if you don't if you don't start out as you know some sort of 
you know, either artist or programmer or whatever, like whatever you're going to come up with early on, there's going to be this long time gap between when you come up with an idea and when you see whether it worked out or not. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you don't even see that until after the game releases, uh, in which case, how does, how does a designer learn on the job, right? Like that's, yeah, that's really, really hard. Whereas, you know, if you're, if you're coding something, you can get kind of like, like you come up with an idea, you can see how it works out sometimes pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so. That's been, that's been tough. That's been tough on this project. Like the, I, I, and I would love to pick your brain about this, like the long-term fun of that in quotes. Right. I don't know what that means. Like when you're playing a strategy game and like, you know, someone, the experience is still going to make sense 10 hours from there, yeah. where they are. Is that what you Yeah. Mean? And also there's a payoff that's waiting for you yeah. eight hours into the game. Well, it's like, that's not, you know, we've never really made a game like that yeah. where you set up these decisions and you do things and then, oh man, there's like the payoff of like cultivating this family line and then, oh, like something sweet happens with them later like that. Um, or just, you know, maybe it's not even like an aha moment, it's just a sort of general realization that you're fighting with the fourth generation of this, you know, particular character and you sort of, and then you take a moment, you look at the family tree and you're like, oh yeah, I remember this guy, like look how much more powerful his great granddaughter is and it's like awesome, you know? Like, how do you measure that? Like, yeah. that's that's just, like, like I think it's a really powerful thing of, like, Civ and, you know, any, like, long-term strategy game. Like, it's just a real benefit to it. And, like, having never made a game like this, like, I'm just trusting that it'll be there. And it's kind of there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I mean, I've, I've definitely played the game for hours and hours in a row. And it's like, yeah, you know, you start to see snippets of it, but it's like not done and it's I don't, it's I don't know how powerful it's, that's going to be the longer it's, longer a game is the harder it like, literally the longer it takes to start a game to finish a game you know if you're talking a game takes 20 hours right and it's repeatable right right it's not just like okay we have 20 hours of can't content um i mean that's that's a different challenge but if you have yeah. 20 hours of content you can't really predict what's going to happen like it's a huge challenge right if you have 15 minutes Awesome content that happens, you know, over and over again. Like that's a lot yeah, simpler, right? Good too. You know, like that's uh, you can every day you can play the game and get get some sense of the, the whole experience. So, you know, there's no easy answer. Like you gotta. I mean, that's why we had like this this private test group for Civ Four that was playing the game like a year and a half before it released. It's like they were the only people who were gonna be be able to play, uh, be motivated enough, motivated enough to play for complete games of Civ Four. Right. Um, so, I mean, I would think for Master Chalice, you need the same, right? You can't, devs are just going to be too busy. Yeah. Right? Like, they're not going to be able yeah. to do it. Yeah. Like, and it's really, it's really rough having people play just on nights and weekends right now. And it's like, you know, when I do it, I feel like there's time, you know, that it's really important, but I know the time that can be spent on the game itself. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's just a big trade off. Whereas, you're right, like an outside tester, like, that is their main contribution to the game, like just playing it and providing feedback and stuff. So, yeah, so yeah, you got. I mean, you got to figure out the way to get the game in the hands of people who are playing and be able to like gather good feedback from them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, let them let them guide you because, especially with a game that long, like they're going to know it way better than you will. Um, because you're, you know, how many times are you going to be able to play the game of Massive Colors, right? Right. Probably 
I mean, how many three right. before it shifts? You know, like, I don't know. It's like, kind of bracing if you think yeah. about it, but that's the way yeah. it is. Like, what else is there? What, how else can it be, right? Um, like, even even if you could, um, even if you could, like, cut aside, like, okay, every Monday and Tuesday, I don't care. I'm playing a big game with you know, Magic yeah. Hell. It's like, you're going to burn out on it so hard that you won't be able to make accurate measurements on it, you know? Um, you're yeah, going to have to learn how to, how to, like, how to handle, how to read feedback accurately, you know, and oftentimes it just comes down to like going to the forum where they're talking about the game and like, yeah. you know, trying to filter through that stuff. Like you can come up with, you can come up with like metrics, but when you're talking, when you're at, when you're still at like a prototype development level, that stuff is usually so all over the place. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that's more for like, once you have, once you have a finished game, you're like, okay, who's winning more? Terran, Protoss, or Zerk, right? Sure. Like, sure. That's, sure. That's awesome. But like, when the whole game is changing all the time, it's like it's really it's really hard, and that's been a that's been a big struggle too. Is like like and it's weird because I, I the game has shades of both because you know that there is definitely like the fifteen minutes of fun kind of thing of just like right. uh, on the tactical side of just sure. like those those are like totally self contained battles and stuff and yeah like you can see the game improve and you can really feel like it's like it's getting better more the like strategic side and like how everything is strung together and all that stuff. That's the part where it's, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, that part's really difficult. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where it ends up. But yeah, there, there is a, an inherent, like, trust that that stuff will come together. Right. Um, that's really hard. Like, I'm finding that really difficult. Yeah. But. Yeah, it's scary. You know, you got to find the people who are, who are willing to do it. I mean, there, there will be people who will, you know. So. And I mean, for sure, I, like, like, we've had backers come in and play it, like, for a whole day. But, uh, they, you know, they didn't play it complete game and the other thing too about the structure of the game is that you can dead end in, you know dead end your whole playthrough and have to start over so yeah. it's like any any new player at the current difficulty level that we have it at like nobody's gonna nobody's gonna finish it their first time holy crap like right, right, right. they're just they're learning so many things and yeah they're yeah it's crazy the ending is really tricky because in order to make the experience like meaningful that has to be kind of possible right but you also have to be able to figure out yeah. Like when the players get into the dead end, like make sure you make it clear to them as quick as possible. Yes, yeah, that's that part's really tough. Like I don't know how we're gonna. I, I haven't exactly figured that part out yet. But you want the death spirals to be like as quick and painless as possible if you start going into it. But you also don't want to make sure that you don't want it so that like one misstep takes you down that path. You know where you're like, oh well, if I if I fuck up one time. Then I'm in the death spiral. I recognize it, and I just start over. It's like you want that sort of like, you know, lose a mission, like get penalized. Yeah. You can actually pull out of the death spiral. Cause that's yeah. like really awesome. So yeah, it's tricky part. This is this is an issue with XCOM as well. Is um, are you ever in a situation where even if you win the battle, you will still lose, right? So like in a position where it doesn't matter, you know, like like the the. The, the metagame level has gone so badly right. that it doesn't matter. Right. You can't recover at the tactical level. We, we tried to try to get around that by like tying the metagame performance to the tactical performance as much as possible, or just a little bit more so than XCOM. I would say. Um, I think that there are times where you do get RNG'd a little bit hard, and you're gonna sort of like you're gonna have to pick between losing two things on the strategic level, no matter how well you do on the tactical level. 
hopefully that just feels like a cool Sophie's Choice kind of moment, yeah. and it doesn't happen that often that it won't like completely spoil your your playthrough. One of the things that that we're trying to figure out is that like like being more resilient. The game by definition is more resilient to a full team wipe than XCOM because. Okay. Those characters are all going to die anyway. Anyway, yeah, that's to me. That was one of the most brilliant concepts when I first read about Massive Cartels. I'm like, oh, that's all kind of problems, right? Like, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, it seems that what I'm worried is that it might be too resilient to it, um, which is weird because if you don't get penalized appropriately on the strategy level for losing all those characters in the tactical side, um, you know, it, you do have that cool story moment where, like, emergent story moment where, like, the children grow up and they're like. You know, hopefully those people had kids and then they grow up and oh man, it's like they're avenging their bloodline that were it's like super rad in theory, but it's like what if that has happened several times and you just feel like your characters are disposable and there there are some like other challenges that come up, but um, sure. yeah, I do I do like that because I, I do feel like playing um, playing Excel on a harder difficulty if you do like wipe with your A team. <laughs> The game is kind of over. Yeah. Like this, it's almost impossible to come back from that. So yeah, that's a, that's a big challenge for the game. And so it's not clear what the answer is for it. Um, yeah. But uh, well, I think what they should do is lean more on um, injuries as opposed to death. That um, it's very often for people to be taken out of commission, but death mm -hmm. is like extremely rare or not even maybe that doesn't exist. You know. So yeah. there's there's a lot of consequence. And the advantage of that is, first of all, it makes more people. Well, they, like some people just are never ready. Or some people are just not ready to have the guys die. Period. Right, you will never right. be ready for that game, right? So if you if you instead do more injuries, like maybe more palatable then for mm -hmm. them. And then also you don't have, you know, you'll never get in that situation where your whole eight team is just oh, definitely right. So I don't know. But one thing you could think about is like really giving yourself a release valve and letting people like tune the game themselves in terms of giving people like. Many different levels, or even maybe even just different, even different vectors. Sure. Like I'm not sure what that would mean, you know, for mass health. I haven't played it enough to know, but um, you know, both ways to make the, maybe the, the metal layer, metal layer harder, or the tactical layer harder, or you know, yeah, change the AI aggressiveness or whatever, or just just have it so that like there's some base level where you know that people are going to be able to cruise through the game if they just want to like, I just want to experience the stuff. Right out, and then like there are these upper levels you need to go to, um, and then you then you can worry less about did you get the balance right because um, you know you're not trying to make just one perfectly sure. experience. Sure. You know? Yeah, that's a um, I mean, that, that's that's what makes it seems like a really good yeah. That's what makes civs work. Civ work, right? I mean, everyone. It's like no matter right? no matter how many levels we add, there's all people like I wish there was one between prince and monarch. And like we have nine <laughs> difficulty levels or whatever, you know? It's like yeah. It seems like there's always like people want a little more granularity. And like and that's fine. That's that's great, you know. Um, so yeah, it's interesting because like you know going back to like that, you know, like I always like the static challenge of, like, the Nintendo games and uh -huh. stuff, and I feel like that's kind of ingrained in me, is that, like, if you have too many, like, bells and yeah. knobs... It's like, what and stuff, am I doing? I'm it's just, like, I mean, messing around. it's yeah. cool that you're just, you're setting up the experience that you want, yeah. but then it becomes really hard to relate to other players and their experience yeah. with the game, because, like, and I mean, I guess in Civilization, like, it's, you know, the whole world is random, like, everything is just kind of feels super random, so it feels like your, your experience is unique to you, so it doesn't matter, like, what 
But that's often what people no, will compare. Or, how, that's often how people will define themselves when they talk about Civ. Like, oh yeah, I regularly beat it on Emperor or whatever. Like, that's often how they'll talk about it. And um, I, don't, I don't really think of it that way. Often they'll ask me, like, what level can you beat? I'm like, right. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't think of it that way, right? But, like, that's because, yeah, because the map changes and, like, the Civ they play change. Whatever. Yeah. That's like, to them, often that's the one constant, right? Um, but even then, like, when you look within the community, they'll be like, yeah, this guy, this is a guy who, who beats on Deity, but they did it because they, they sputzed with the settings, right? They played, like, on an island map with lots sure. of water, which means, like, basically everyone has their own island, and, like, oh, you can't attack me, right? Sure, you know? sure. And uh, so they're like, well, did really beat on Deity? And it's like, I don't know. I don't, know. I, I don't care, obviously, but, like, uh, you know, this is kind of, like, it's what happened. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking of, is that it just... You lose the idea of it being like a fixed challenge that other yep. people can like can compare to, but also like single player game, it seems like there yep. shouldn't be that kind of like dick measuring kind of stuff that happens with a certain game. But for sure, there's well, gonna I be a bunch the, of like uh, alpha people that want to talk about it that way. Here, so. Here's one thing that I've been thinking about recently for um, someone for off world, or even for just basically every game I make going forward. Like I've, I found the the whole game of the day thing for uh, the speed, the, speed lucky, the daily challenge, yeah, the yeah. Lucky just. Uh, fascinating thing, right? Because it's, awesome. it's, because it's a procedural game, but it gives people that shared experience, that shared measure experience to go in. Like this awesome best of both worlds. And that's easy to pull, I mean, literally easy to pull off for them. Like they just use the, I don't know, the date as the seed yeah. or whatever it was. I, I know there must be a little bit more involved, but that's basically all it is, right? It's just making sure everyone plays the same yeah, seed awesome. on the same day. Genius, right? Um, how could that work for a game like XCOM or Rastic Talent or Civ or something? Um, you know, I mean, maybe you change the the, um, the timeline a little differently. You have a game of the month or maybe a game of the week or something where, like, every on every Monday, like, everyone gets, like, the same experience for we're, Rastic we're Talent totally, or something. We were totally like talking about that. Like, you know, just having a different, a different seed. Yeah, and that's really the thing that we were smashing into is that it's, like, it's such a much longer form kind of game. Like, how do you... Some people won't finish it within a week, right? Sure. And like, you yeah. know. But then some people will, and it's like, ah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I like um, playing Crypto the Necrodancer right now, mm -hmm. which is very similar in a lot of ways. They have a daily challenge and stuff like that. They also have this, like, this, another mode where you can actually type in a seed. So you can sort of, like, perfect a run on just a whatever, you can just come up with a random number or share it with your friends and then just kind of mess around and you know that you're having that shared experience and you can do it as much as you want. I, that seems pretty interesting to me yeah. as well. But it's like, there's something cool about that daily challenge where everybody's <coughs> playing the same thing. It's like, yeah, it is that like shared experience. It's awesome. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it would be cool. Like, because we have a lot of random elements in the game. Um, and you, you'd almost want to even think about having separate random number generators that you keep track of. Like, you know, a lot, often a lot of games have one random number generator that just everything gets fed into. Like, you know, you, you, the original world map comes from that. And then, you know, battle, you know, the battle results come from that. And, like, uh, random events after the game come from that, right? Mm -hmm. So so that what that means is, uh, let's say everyone starts with the same world in the game of Civ. Fine. Like, the world's the exact same. Everyone's the exact same. Strange situation. But let's say someone goes west. One player goes west and a player goes east player goes west, runs into a barbarian, right, and decides to fight a battle. That one roll of dice there is going to change everything else that happens for the rest of the game. Right. Right. So right. If, if, this, if a game has, like, random events, like maybe every 
hundred years, there sure. might be, you know, a flood or a, you know, a, you know, a new religion starts here or whatever. Like you almost might want to have a separate seed just for those RAM events so that like, okay, um, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, you 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 had you had your own experiences with with combat or whatever. But for everyone playing this one game, this you know, Civ for July or whatever, the Crusade event will always happen yeah, to happen that on the same awesome. year for that one playthrough, even though it'll be different. You know, for for other playthroughs. Yeah, that um, se- that seems really great. Um, and then it fixes a lot of like scum saving stuff. Yeah. And because you want you want great. some stuff, you want as much stuff to line up as you can. You know, like obviously, you know, once people get into battle, those are going to be totally different for everyone because as soon as you make one different choice, it's all going to spiral mm-hmm. out of control. But you know, whatever high level stuff you can you have, it'd be great to get that stuff. Yeah, 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 that's awesome. So well, we should jump back to <laughs> oh yeah yeah technology. crap that's right we were you, you were just starting to double fine and you were yeah, yeah. so what did you you were a gameplay you programmer were, yeah yeah like yeah. What, did, what did that mean exactly it was um. I, you know, it didn't really, most of the, the whole, that whole game is mostly about, like, levels. Yeah. It's about, like, the complexity and the difference between, you know, all these, like, one-off weird levels that have their own mechanics and their own stuff going on. Um, so, most of the gameplay programmers were, like, just in charge of levels X, Y, Z, and whatever, and those were the things that they were scripting up and, and adding new mechanics as needed for the stuff. There was one um, systems programmer, uh, Paul Dubois, amazing systems dude, who was also doing like all the player control, so like all the platforming and the physics and all that stuff. He was kind of like handling that, so it's like gameplay programming was more about like scripting and all this stuff. But um, I had done a lot of like combat stuff before I got here uh, on that Ultra Echo game, and yeah, that had been like where the majority of my work had been, and the combat was like really bad it's like not, it was not the focus of the game at all but it was just like so not the focus that it was nobody was really right. doing it you know it was like oh we kind of need this thing for this level so I guess that game of grammar will do it and it was just it was just kind of an early bad state so I was like oh I can do this like why don't I handle this and it was kind of like all over the map there wasn't we didn't really have a lot of production Mm-hmm. But you know, not experienced production about like how to make games going on here at the time, and so I just kind of like jumped in and like started doing it, working with animators, um, working with the effects guy who was actually like my buddy, which was cool. Um, okay, my buddy Dion. So that was cool, like like just like rebuilding the core, like melee attacks and the um, like the side blast and the confusion grenade and the power pieces, and I did a bunch of those like mechanics, just trying to make them. I mean, they were, they're never going to be, like, the star of the show, and right. I knew that, but at least I just wanted them to be. It's kind of like kind of like the guy that does the camera in a third-person game. It's like, if you read a review and nobody complains about the camera, that means the camera guy did, like, a really good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in a game like Psychonauts, where it's more about, like, the art and the story and the characters and, like, the setting and dialogue and all these things, like, if... I read a review afterwards, and nobody said, "Oh yeah, and the combat's really terrible." Then I felt like I like nailed it. So <laughs> it was um, and I feel like that like happened. You know, it was like it was totally passable. <laughs> um, it was it was like I thought it was pretty fun. Like it felt okay. Um, 
we have like, and the, one of the weird things is that Raz had these like tiny little arms. He's just like got a huge football head yeah, yeah, and like yeah, sure. tiny little body and tiny little arms. So we gave him these like psionic chops with like this big huge uh, like psionic karate chopping hand that would come out, and um, the effects are not really well for it, and it feels pretty good, and it solves a lot of the problems that you get with like a character that has little tiny T-Rex arms. So. Um, it was it was really fun to work on. Like I liked working on it, um, and I did some other like random scripting on levels and boss battles and enemies and just like a lot of a lot of stuff. I didn't really like own a level like a lot of the other GPs. I was just kind of like doing gameplay mechanics inside of a lot of different levels and then, like the combat the overarching thing. Um, it was really fun though. It was cool to work on that game. It was fucking brutal though. Like that was because of you know lack of production skills. I think at the studio at the time, there was just like, uh... Was there a lot of stuff thrown out? Is that what you mean? Or like... Uh, there was a lot of stuff thrown out, but the brutality was just like the hours. The yeah. crunch mode. It was like, it was a complete death You march. guys bought a bit off more than... Yeah. For sure, like, the game was too big. It was too complicated. Um, there was not enough shared stuff across it. Yeah. A lot of one-offs. Um, and then a lot of bugs. Things, things get brittle because of a lot of special cases. Very brittle. Very brittle. And then the places where things were shared, it was probably bad that they were. There was a <laughs> door that got shared that, like, uh, several people, this, like, door script that probably shouldn't have been right. shared that ended up causing a lot of bugs because it had, like, specific one-off cases. Somebody would make it swing the other way, and then it would swing that way and, uh, and break the game and whatever. So, like, there were some... Um, there were some, like, amateur mistakes on that game. It's still a really good game, though. Like, I mean, people, you can People love it. Though. Through, like, 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 through like, brute force and just blood, sweat, and tears, you can make something that's, like, really good. Plus, it's, like, most of the... Most of, like, the setting and the writing and the cutscenes and stuff, that was, like, done before I even got here. Like, right. that... I think for almost the entire game, that stuff was, like, in the can. And it's amazing. Like, it's... Tim spent so much time, like, even before the company was formed, I think he had started, like, thinking about... Like, um, the different characters in the campground, and it, it, just, he, it was the game he wanted to make for like a really long time. Did he? Did he want to make it as? I mean, up to that point, he had made adventure games. Did, yeah. did he really want to make a non-adventure game, he or really did he? Was it not adventure game? Okay. He really wanted to. Um, yeah, he really. It wasn't the market. No, he really wanted to make platformer. Really, he was really interested in like the genre and like. Yeah, he really wanted to, like... I think also, like, he didn't want to feel like he was pigeonholed into making adventure games. Right. He wanted to be like, yeah, we can make... You know, we can take all the things that are great about adventure games and put them into a platformer, and we'll have a totally sweet game. And, like, I think we did, you know? Like, awesome. Um, there's, like, dialogue trees and, you know, tons of awesome characters, and there's, like, inventory puzzles. Like, everything that you would expect an adventure game to have, like, like not has, it also has, like, all the platforming, and then all these, like crazy one-off mechanics as well on top of that. So, like, um, yeah, it's a it's a really cool game. Like, I like it. And it, um, we actually had some, we had, it's really funny, we had a speedrunner in the office the other day. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably spoiling this for people, but um, there'll be a video of it. And stuff. It was, we kind of just, like, revisited the game. All the people that were left in the studio who worked on it, like, we all kind of, like, watched this guy play it. Right. It was super fun, like, looking at it, uh-huh. it holds up pretty well and it's yeah. cool because I I find it very hard to like go back and play games I've worked on like I don't think I've really ever done it um, 
yeah, I just, I just find it very difficult to like laugh and like play through them again. So, um, yeah, that was, that was cool. But, um, but yeah, so we got dropped by Microsoft kind of, we didn't know what was going to happen and everybody kept working and at like, I think we were about to like miss paycheck. Uh, yeah. And, uh, Majesco like signed it. Like wow. Tim had been shopping it around and, you know, it was really far along and all that stuff. And Majesco like decided to pick it up. And that was awesome. They were kind of, they were kind of riding high on the hog at that time. Um, they signed us and, um, Advent Rising. That was like the mm-hmm. Orson Scott card game. Mm-hmm. And they were really expecting both of these to like, you know, be these like big gangbusters things and put a lot of money behind them. And neither of them did very well. Like, that was a bummer. Like, they, um, yeah, they like, yeah, I don't know. Pegasus did not light up the chart. It was reviewed very highly. Yeah, people, people want cult classic, I guess. Is yeah, it. yeah, <laughs> which is like, that, you know, it's bad. Like, I hate even talking about that aspect of it. It's, it's something that, like, you know, Tim doesn't want Double Fine to be like an underdog company. Yeah. You know, that's something that he he always said, but that he didn't, you know, and he even said it like before we released the game, just in previews and stuff. Like, people would be like, wow, it's so quirky, like, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, shut up. <laughs> shut your mouth. Like, don't say that. You know, don't set us up to be this underdog that makes weird stuff. Like, we make creative stuff, but we want, we want everybody to, like, play it. And, you know, we want everybody to buy it and play it. And, like, and, yeah. So, I don't know. But, um, what happened? What happened after that? So that was like as it was winding down. Um, I mean, it must have been a tough moment for the studio, even even with being refugees by Majesco's, right? So. Yeah, it was. I mean, Majesco was really good though, and they they supported it as much as they could, and like they ran an okay ad campaign, I guess. Um, it was tough for them to like make a big spend and like really get it out there on TV and stuff. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, what I was doing at the time. Um, I was trying to, like, weasel my way into the design group. <laughs> right. Mostly, like, well, that was, like, my agenda. Um, again, still, even all through this stuff, I think at the time, I was not really thinking about, like, okay, if this game doesn't sell, but we're done. Right. You know, it was not, even though, like, I think that's a very real risk for, like, any independent game company, but, like, I just had not been attuned to the business side yet, and I was, ugh. So, um... Tim, I think that we had a weird, bad experience with this guy on the Microsoft side who was like a designer and he was like, you know, he claimed to have done all this stuff and all these games and he like gave us his critique of what we should be doing with Psychonauts and stuff. It's terrible. And um, that actually helped me get into the design group because Tim was like, well, we need it, you know, if we're going to work, we're going to make this Brew Legend game, like, we need more designers. Yeah. And then, like, Brad wants to be desired, and he likes our stamp game, so, cool. Like, we will just give him a shot. And so I kind of got, like, slotted in. We didn't even interview designers or anything, because I think it was because Tim was, like, so put off by designers outside the company or whatever, because this, it was really great. Oh, like it was turning up a risk, basically? Or? I think so, yeah. And, and was, it, was it all this? It would be, like, a waste of time, I think. Was it all conceived of as an RTS? Oh, yeah. yeah. So that was the thing. So he, so when he decided this, he was, like, um, I remember we went to the Utah. And it's not like, just an RTS, it's a unusual no, no. RTS. Yeah, so like, he was what, like, he was like hey, like, I want to tell you about, I want to tell you about the game. He's like, the next game that I wanted to make. And I was like, okay. And he told me about it. 
and I was like, fucking mind blown. You know, yeah. he's like, he's like, I love Herzog Spy yeah. on the Genesis. Okay. And so what if we made a game that was like Herzog Spy, but in this heavy metal world where you're a roadie and like all these demons. It's funny because like that's, that's jumping way back to the beginning of the evolutionary chart for our Jets, right? Yeah. The whole thing absolutely. of like controlling one unit got yeah. left behind basically. As they move forward, you know, but I totally did, and it was and it was cool, and I thought it was so compelling, and I loved RTS games like um, Dune Two, and and then Command and Conquer and Warcraft, and like I, I Starcraft. I was such a huge fan of all those games, and like he told me about it, and I was just like, this sounds, this is amazing, you know, like this has such potential. It's it's funny, yeah. It's, especially thinking in terms of that you, you're a big Dota fan, but I almost see yeah. that as like almost part of that branch yeah. as well, right? Like. Absolutely, it is. It's trying to it's trying to make like I see all of that stuff like Brutal Legend and Dota and yeah. all that stuff as trying to just like what's cool about RTS, but again personal touch. Yeah. Like the trying to make it more. Um, there's a big world. There's a spectacle going on, but you only have to focus on one character. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, just trying to make it more about something that is easily graspable yeah. for a human brain. Because um, I think that multitasking. And APM and all that stuff is very, very difficult right. for you. Well, it's funny. People get, people get on of Dota and, and League of Legends and uh, uh, they get on those games for being so complex and difficult and challenging, but there's also a big aspect of those games that are hugely accessible when you compare them to a typical yeah, RTS. Absolutely. Like, people should forget like how much easier those games are to play than those RTS games. Yeah. Like, it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah. And it's, uh, I, I like that idea that it's like, oh yeah, you're controlling this army, but you're really like controlling the avatar and yep. you're running around. That's like what it's all about. Um, yeah, I was so, so, so excited. And Tim had been dropping you around for a while. So that's a lot of faith um, they put in you then. Well, it was, there's still, you know, there's still Tim and then a lead designer, Eric Robson, and, and right. then me. But it's like, that was the but whole. But you're designing the game. Yeah, I mean, so is Eric. Eric's definitely, like, a, a right. game mechanics designer as well. Um, but it was really, like, yeah, I designed a lot of parts of that game that just kind of stuck. You know, yeah. like, a lot of the... Um, we, we made this, so, we made this, like, prototype in Unreal Tournament 2K4. It's like our, we, were, we had to sort of, we, we decided to do the engine from scratch to a whole new engine for that game. Right. And while we were waiting around, we kind of like did this prototype that was, um, yeah, like in the Unreal Engine and stuff. And a lot of the same concepts that were like that we did early on, like stayed all the way. Like the way that the flight controlled, because um, Eddie has like these demon wings that like he's part demon, and he can uh, like fly up above a battlefield and like look at it from like a top-down perspective, and you use it to sort of again get that top-down perspective be able to order a unit, see what's going on, um, and then also getting around. So it's sort of like um, when he's on the ground, it's like you're actually like in the fight and you're like battling alongside your units and stuff. But when you're in the air, it's like you're kind of like the mouse cursor mixed with like your viewport mm-hmm. almost. Um, and it that that concept stuck through like the whole game. Like that was like the cornerstone of the RTS segment of it. It's weird, like, looking back on it and seeing how big the MOBA stuff has gotten. Like, I feel like that would have probably been a better way to go. And we even talked about it near the end, not in MOBA terms, but more in, like, what if there was just, like, an auto, kind of auto base manager right, kind of thing that would happen? Right. Like, like, what if the base building and the ordering was just not Which you were still married to a lot of the traditional RGS concepts. Yeah, right? and I think that it, 
hard to look past that. It really was. It really was at the time, especially like, you know, Hairstock 5 being the initial launching point, and then me bringing a lot of like StarCraft, Warcraft, um, CNC to the mix. It was, it was really tough to sort of like see it a different way, I think. Um, also, just the biggest thing that I learned from that game was streamlining. Everything was, you know, we just tried to make everything so unique. Like, everything has to be unique, and everything has to have its own mechanic, and everything has to be as original as possible all the time, and everything has to be sort of complicated, I yeah. guess. And when you say that, like, you know, you wish that maybe you were, it was more focused on just controlling a character, and yeah. there, was, there was a lot of the other stuff that was going on in the game was perhaps more automated. Um, what, what stopped you guys from getting to that realization? Like, do you, do you feel like there wasn't, would you, would you have gotten there if there was more outside feedback on, like, how people were spinning the game? Or did you, um, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't think so. I don't think it's something that we could have come to. You had, you had to go through the entire experience? I think we had to go through the whole thing and make that game and have it be released and then think about it a lot afterwards. Like, I think that's the really the only way for us to get there because, um, we were so dedicated to like really trying to find the answer to like. There's got to be a, a way to make this work. Yes, we'll right. Couple arc, yes. Like that was. Well, that's true. That was that was like the uh, white whale back in time. It was the holy grail. It was the white whale. It was yeah. the thing that. Um, there were a lot of crazy control streams back then. Like we're bringing Middle of Earth to the console, and like, you know, they were all, they were all this like creative work, but it was like trying to make this. It was trying to like. Metaphor, but like it's not tenable, right? Like, no, you can't control a bunch of units on a console. It's, it's just I, not a good idea. Yeah, I, I just don't think it's. I think that you have to change the game. You mm-hmm. know, you just have to change it. And I, and I feel like if you look at Brutal Legend, I feel like we were changing it more than most. Yeah. Like, you know, I think there was that Sega one, the Universe at War, which was just trying to do straight RTS on a console. Yeah. And I think they put Supreme Commander on there and like, you know, some really traditional RTSs and tried, tried to do a control scheme and it just never really worked. Ours was significantly different, but even that, like, yeah, it's just a really hard thing to, like, multitask. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the RTS, the classic RTS format is very much wedded to the interface of a PC. I mean, really this is, is true for almost every video game. Like, it's, it's a, it evolves within the interface, its native interface. Um, and, you, you know, you should not assume that games can just make that jump. And it's weird, though, because occasionally they can. Like, you see first-person shooters, and the first few first-person shooters that migrated onto consoles were really bad. Yeah. Control scheme was really bad, and it's not until Halo, like until somebody like with a lot of skill and thought and time and expertise, like they actually cracked that nut, and now like shooters are super healthy on yeah. on the console. And so that's like, I mean, so yeah, I think that we approached it at, yeah. as that. We're like, well, a game, the game pads are awesome at controlling a character. Right, yeah. like that's almost what they're perfect for. Um, and yeah, so, and maybe that was that—that's the sort of like fundamental thing that is just flawed about our whole, you know, our whole take on it. I don't know. I I do think that you know, if you were to do it now, and you were, you know, I look at that game, um, Smite, just like a MOBA that has like you know, it's played from a third-person perspective. Uh-huh. I haven't actually played it, but I think that if you consoled it up. Yeah. You know what I mean? You made it like more visceral and more like whatever, like um, more about controlling the character and like fluid movement. Um, I think that you have a really compelling console MOBA experience. Well, I think there's like I think there's a huge missed opportunity for the industry right now. The fact that um, obviously MOBAs are huge, right? Like it's not like you need to make the business case to it anymore. Yeah. Um, and 
right now there's a ton of money being poured into mobile. For some reason, like yes. everyone thinks they're going to be able to like There's make so this MOBA that's going to work on an iPad, and I don't—it's not really a great interface for them. But at the same time, like a game controller is yeah. like a great interface for controlling yeah. one character. It like, really like is. Really there is. is a giant pile of money sitting on the table there for someone who figures out how to make the console MOBA that that does yeah. great. Like, yeah. it seems yeah. so clear. Um, and, and I don't know what. It, well, I mean, some people, people. I mean, there are games that are trying, but like, yeah. it seems like no one is quite. The it. Gearbox one sounds similar. It yes. seems like we're like pre-Halo. Yes, yes, know, yes. I, I feel like somebody's gonna do it, and it's gonna be like, it's gonna make so much sense after they release it, and they'll be like, wow, amazing, that's the game that is defining this shift yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And I, I could see it eventually swamping the PC one. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't yeah. see why not. Um. Yeah. So. I don't know. I still like. There's a lot of good things about the brutal legend design. Yeah. Like I, I learned a ton. Um, we definitely tried to do too much. That game was cut. It was cut in half. And what was cut? And then like what, what is it? So the <laughs> exactly. so there were originally four features cut or content. There were cut four or? races instead okay. of three. So there's a whole extra faction that we had actually started a lot of work on and stuff, and then eventually had to cut. Um, there's really the story was supposed to have four legs uh-huh. to it where you um, you play as the um, you play as Ironhead the like heavy metal faction and then you play as the um, the goth faction and then you were gonna play as the um, as the the missing faction the big daddy rock kind of like faction and so only yeah I guess a third of that was cut but then also so much of this cut. Oh my god. Just a lot of just it was really hacked down. Um but it's crazy because it's still a really long game. Yeah. Like it was just envisioned as it's like When you're making a game about something that's supposed to be epic, I guess. Yeah, you and, and I think that, and, and Tim, you know, Tim it's genius. Like his ideas, like he had so many ideas. Sure. Yeah. Um also I think that we we had the the benefit and the curse of having a lot of time up front. Waiting for the technology to be created at the same time. Basically, like, like the technology started at the same time. You constantly more, more work than you could ever possibly. Got it. Deliver. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was like, if we could have started on the game right away. Yeah. Um, that's I why I like it would have been smaller. That's why I like trying to stick to a prototype as opposed to classic pre-production. It keeps you honest yeah. about like the game you think you're making. Yeah. I, I, again, like I don't know if that works if you're making content-based games. Yeah, I I don't know what works. Brew Legend was a kind of a weird mix of both, though, right? Absolutely. That was the other thing is they had a big open world component on yeah. top of that, so that was really rough as well. That it's like well, we had to worry about populating the open world and having enough like missions and enough content to actually like fill it up. And if, if someone think, looks at a game and like identifies all of the different aspects, all of like the danger areas, the risk areas, like. Looking at Brew Legend, it's just like risk piled upon risk piled upon one risk. giant risk. It's crazy. It's like thirty games in one. Yeah. It's really, really and all nuts. the stuff that hasn't been done before. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that, I think that was the biggest thing that I learned working on that game was that you know, just um, simplifying, streamlining, finding the core, and just like trying to stick to that. Uh, well, it's good to it's good to have some part of your game that you know is already locked down before you begin, right? Like there's an aspect of Master Callus where you know that like I know this whole Tactical combat tied to a meta game. I know it can work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm going to make I've these changes. It. I've seen it work. But like, I know this will work. 
for me. You know, we're not just imagining a game that maybe will or maybe won't. Yep. And here's our our list of things that we'll streamline on the tactical layer, and then here's the thing we'll streamline on the on the meta layer, and then here are the new things that we'll add to the meta layer. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah. all right, like hopefully that, that that's like a winning formula. Yeah. Um, and you know, like sometimes you do have to totally punt out into some unknown area, but when you do it and you're putting your entire studio behind it, like. You, you it's really you scary. The risk. It's really scary. And that <laughs> was you better know what you're doing. And that one, um, so yeah, end of brutal legend. Like it, yeah. EA hyped it up like it was. They put a lot of money behind the marketing of it. Yep. Um, there was that weird thing where we weren't allowed to talk about the RTS aspect, and um, yeah, that was a little bit weird. Uh, the commercials didn't really allude to it at all. It was kind of we we talked about how. You know, we even talked about this too. Just like, would it have been better if we had just made God of God of War with a car in this world? That was sort of the the thing. Like, for sure, it felt like that's what EA wanted. That's why I thought the game was from just seeing the marketing, right? Like, marketing is not just about selling the game; it's about finding the audience, yeah, who's actually gonna like your game, yeah, right. And that, um, and it's weird because, like, I think that would be a really good game, actually. If we made that game, I think it sure. would have been awesome. But it was just not the game that Tim wanted to make, and it was not the game I wanted to make. And a lot of people on the team, like I, I liked that we were trying to make things, sure. but I just think it was just overly ambitious. It's like, just, yeah, yeah. Um, but so it kind of, you know, the reviews were a little bit all over the place. Still pretty high uh, when you average it out and stuff. But um, but I definitely, you know, you focus more on the negative ones, and it hit pretty hard. But um, we, were, we started work on the sequel. We started kind yep. of pre-production on the sequel, but that lasted like a couple weeks. <laughs> like, and then EA EA decided to cut it. Um, and then it was like crazy because we didn't know what we were gonna do right. next. And um, we oh, during Brutal Legend, I think like 2007, we, we did this thing that Tim had always wanted to do called Amnesia Fortnite. Right. That was the first one. And like, it's basically like a game jam, internal game jam, two weeks long. Um, focusing on making sure that you have a complete prototype, not just a prototype of one mechanic or a prototype of a visual thing. No, no, it's like a it's like a complete prototype, and I think that's pretty cool. It's that you know you, you try to get at least something that feels representational of the gameplay, the visuals, the effects, the audio, the everything, the music. Like you try to get everything like in the ballpark so that you can see what it might be like to actually do the game. I think it's a really cool concept. It just takes a lot longer than some traditional prototyping kind of. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, he, he handpicked the people for the first one and I was one of the people that he picked and I was like, holy shit. So it wasn't the whole studio. It wasn't the whole, well, the whole studio was working on it. Um, it was, we split them up into four groups. Oh, okay. He handpicked the leaders. leaders. Yeah. Sure. And then we divided the studio amongst, um, those four teams. And and this was still during Brutal Legend? It was, yeah, it was like halfway point in Brutal Legend. That must have been quite a decision to pull two weeks of studio time out. It was amazing. I mean, it was something that he just really believed in, yeah. and we kind of, I did. EA know that? Uh, I think it was still Vivendi at the time, who was the first oh, publisher. Right. Well, again, we had the double publisher thing for that, um, <laughs> and uh, I think it was still Vivendi. And there was double five was not not a place for someone high blood pressure. <laughs> no, I think, and there are, there have been some people that like just have not been able to take the stress, you know. Just, yeah. Like, I yeah, I haven't like really thought about leaving, but. It definitely it's you know what the thing is though you always feel alive at double five. Yeah, yeah. It's never a double. Some people here, some people you know? are built for that. Never a double moment. Like yeah. it's always um, whether it's good or bad. There's always something crazy exciting happening. Um, but yeah, so I got to lead the project and I found it really crazy that like 
I always wanted to sort of like lead a game myself, but didn't really know what that meant. And when push comes to shove, push came to shove, I didn't really know what I wanted to make. It was amazing. It was like, so we said, uh, we want you to go in the leads and just do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Whatever you want. Blank slate. You just have to make something playable in two weeks. So what did you consider? So I thought a lot about, well, I've been playing a lot of shooters. I'm sure I knew I wanted to do a shooter. Um, I wanted to do something that was, because I'd, I'd only really worked on like brawlers and like melee based games. And I was like, I was like, these shooters seem pretty easy. <laughs> that was my, I was like, these shooters seem pretty easy compared to like, you know, fucking, you just have a rocket launcher and a machine gun and like, you know, it, there's hardly any animation involved and all this stuff. I was like, it seems pretty easy. So I kind of wanted to like put my money where my mouth was and like try it out. And, um, shooters are hard for lots of other reasons, but, um, <laughs> I think that in terms of like like pacing and animation fidelity and all this stuff, like brawlers are have it really have it really hard. Like yeah. it's really really sure. tough to get that stuff right. Um, so I knew I wanted to do a shooter, but I just was having a really hard time coming up with other ideas because I didn't want to just be like yeah. So you shooter. were you were trying to adapt to the production and technical constraints of yes. two weeks. Absolutely, I was. Absolutely, I was, and I was trying to come up with something that was new and different, but could also leverage the engine and uh -huh. all the stuff that we had done with. Brutal Legends, and so I've been playing a lot of tower defense games, like like desktop tower defense. Mm -hmm. um, and I've just been a big fan of that like style of gameplay. I thought was very interesting and very. Um, plus, my brain was fully entrenched in this like uh, RTS sort of stuff, unit control, all these like really really difficult problems with units that could move. So it was like, hey, what if the units couldn't move? <laughs> Wouldn't that be sweet? Um, and then I think that sort of took me down the road of like like mixing a tower defense game with a shooter. Uh -huh. um, and I love mech games. I guess that just got sort of sprinkled in there. Love Battletech. I think it's super rad. Love Western mech design and all that stuff. And then I, I don't know where the steampunk stuff came from. But I was like, ah, steampunk stuff is cool. And so it was actually, it was called Custodians of the Clock. The worst name for anything. I don't know why I decided to call it that, but that was the best I could come up with um, during the time frame. And yeah, we made this, like, you're defending this big, like, steam factory, uh -huh. and there were, like, these zombie robots that would attack it, and you are in, you know, you're, like, a dude in the top hat, like, in a Mac, in a big steampunk Mac, right. and, like, build towers, and whatever, and that was, like, the game. It was actually more about, like, building traps and stuff like that, um, uh -huh. but it just, there were a lot of problems with it. It was, it barely worked. It barely, barely <laughs> worked, um, but it was playable, and it looked really cool, and I was, like, super proud of it, and then when we got to the end of Brew Legend, and it, but it just kind of went on the shelf, but it was like, eh, you know, whatever, we'll see, maybe we'll do something with that one day. Um, but then Brutal 2 got canceled, and yeah. Tim was like, all right, we're taking, we had actually done two MVP Fortnite's. Um, the second one was right after Brutal Shift, we yeah. did another one. Um, and so Snacking and Costume Quest came out of the second one, uh -huh. and, he, and he grabbed those, and then grabbed uh, what would eventually become the animation game of Mod Monster, and then, um, uh, and then my game, so he, pitched those four um, and all of them got signed and I had never done it before and I was so frightened out of my mind who did you like, pitch to? oh my god I pitched to tons of people to THQ I pitched to Microsoft to Sony Online I pitched to um, Custodians you yeah, all those yeah, yeah 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 um, I think it was like a dozen by the end or something uh, like that EA um, I don't think we pitched to Activision but <laughs> Everybody, but <laughs> um, and and it, you know, and and Custodians was actually the last one to get signed, uh -huh. and but we did get it signed and we worked on those, and that was like 
And that was like a huge step up because I'd never been like a lead designer or manager or anything. And here I am like running this whole How did you like project. pitching? Hated pitching. Oh my God, I hated it. And I still kind of hate it, but I've done it so much now that it's like, I'm more numb to it yeah. and I understand. I feel like also the other thing is like seeing the business side, seeing the P&L and being exposed to the side of things more. Um, I don't necessarily like that stuff, but I realized what a necessary evil it is. And I realized that like, it's about sales as well. Like it's not just about making a great game. It's about like selling your game when you're done with it. And I think that it gives people a lot of confidence if you can come in and sell the game before it's a game. I think that's like really great. That's like, like, I think that that's just like really impressive for the people that are and now, whether or not you can actually make that game and sell that game afterwards is like a different yeah. story. But there's really two core things that are important when you make a game as a product. You know, you need to make a game that people are going to keep playing, which is what we usually think about. And then you have to also make a game that people are going to pick up and buy to begin with, right? And that's the yeah. that's often the harder part if you're kind of a you know gameplay focused guy to like keep in mind. Yeah, um, it's a, it's a really and that's what yeah that's what pitching is about. It's a really hard thing to do, and I I just found it. What's, what's really hard about pitching, not well, what's really weird about pitching is there's often these specific ideas, these little stories you can tell that, that like, come across really well, even though they're just this tiny part of your game, or they're something that even just gets tossed out entirely. Yeah. But they almost become, like, the thing that, like, sells the game. Yeah. It's often, it's, like, it almost feels, like, so partially disingenuous, but, like, that's just the nature of the beast, you know? Um, and it's weird because you never know what people are going to pick up on. Yep. And, like, it, it's so performative. That's the other thing that's weird about it is that every audience is going to be looking for a different thing. Yeah, and then they'll come up with their own random thing. idea, and you're like, should I go with this? Yeah. Or should and I be like, like, no, this is really what right, we think of. That, I think that is the hardest part that I still never got a good handle on. Because sort of like, obviously you're there to make them happy, but, like, you don't want to sell a game that... Yes. You don't leave the room where yeah. you guys don't think the game is the same thing, right? And there's there's also the sort of, like, pseudo-challenging question that they ask you, and you never know if you're, like, it feels like there's a right answer that they're looking for. Like, like will your game have this feature in it? Like, will it have multiplayer, like, online multiplayer in it? Right. And, like... I feel like you've got this checkbox. Yeah. And you've got this list here. Right. How many like, things can I check? It's like, I feel like sometimes those are traps, and the right answer that he's looking for is absolutely not. This is a single-player game, through and through, we're focused, you know, we don't want to blow up the budget, we have all these reasons why we would never do that, you know? Um, or they're looking for, oh, absolutely, like, if that's something you're interested in, we will totally explore it, we have a design for that, we're going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just like, you don't know these people, usually, and... You have no idea where the you know every every uh, corporation or whatever has like a completely different set of uh, like their agenda is different. They're like what what currently is the most important thing right. for them is different, and so you I don't know it's crazy that that part is real crazy and it and it can drive you crazy like yeah. trying to do that I don't know and I don't like pretend to be like a master like yeah. it, I think we largely got lucky and it was largely because like him was along for the dog and pony show and it was just like cool you know um yeah like i i don't know it was weird but they are assigned and i got to work on the game and yeah. like we worked with microsoft and um yeah like i learned a lot and it was really good that it was 
streamlined to begin mm-hmm. with because we had to further streamline it. The, uh, the original idea, rather than just being like a straight tower defense game, is that it would be a combination of depending locate like a more open world kind mm-hmm. of uh, level, and you would start at one location, defend it for a while, like start at a random location, defend it for a while, then traverse to another random location, fighting enemies along the way, and then defend that that second location. And it would be like a mixture of these like traversal and defense missions. And like that's, you know, and, and there was a lot of like um, dynamism, like, you know, the, all the missions were different. You know, it's sort of like you would just take a X level difficulty mission in this region and you would go fight it and it would right. just be, you know, kind of so how did you, dynamic. How did, how did you guys scope it then? Uh, it was a lot like, of like was starting. That a or it was a lot of like starting in that direction and then it not working very well. Um, also, the traversal idea was just a train wreck out of the gate that, like, I didn't spot because it's like it's a tower defense game. You you collect resources, lay down towers. That's you know one of the core mechanics of the game. Uh-huh. And so when you have to leave all your towers behind, or you know during the traversal section, you you throw towers or do you not? You fight them with your mech, or do you mm-hmm. feel like you know every time you throw down a tower, you're like, oh crap, I'm not getting that money back, and it, it just it just created all these like really really bad unsolvable problems and yeah it just wasn't working and so it was like our producer from microsoft came down and kind of like hashed it out and it was really difficult but it was basically we made a decision to make it more linear make it more level focused um and have it just focused on the tower defense aspect but i think it created a much more polished game for sure i think it was the right call um i think that other design is interesting maybe but it's just eh, it's just fundamentally flawed i'm glad we made the game that made um just let us polish it up a lot more um otherwise than we could have rather otherwise which is really great it's interesting because um seems like there's some parallels you can uh, parallels or contrast i'm not sure what's the right term for it but if you compare going from brutal legend to trenched um it's interesting because in both cases you're kind of taking a genre focusing taking a genre that works at a sort of high level focusing on one character um And then the question is, like, um, the, the difference is Rue Legend just stayed huge, yeah. right? Whereas yeah, yeah, yeah. with Trench, you guys kind of really narrowed it down, probably out of necessity. Like, I wonder how much that it was conscious. But... It was more out of necessity. Yeah, it was more out of necessity and budget. And, um... But it seems like part of the reason that it, it came to, that a lot of people responded to was because it did have that focus. Yeah, and it, and it really did. And I thought that was... Um... I thought that was really good that it was um, so streamlined and we didn't have that same control issue that you had in, um, it still had like strategy elements in yeah. it with the tower defense stuff, but it did not have that level of like splitting your focus in your brain and like you were always just able to concentrate on the shooting and you know, sort of in the back of your mind you were thinking about the tower yeah. stuff. But then um, at the end of each wave, we made that very conscious as well that um, being wave based, you could sort of flip your brain from uh, shooting mode into strategy right. mode and then back, and it felt, I think it was pretty satisfying to go back and forth between those two modes. Um, do, you, do you think this part of this was a response to like learning from Brutal Legend? Absolutely, absolutely. It was just, yeah, trying to, I mean, even in the, you know, even in the prototype, it was like, this part, is, this is such a hard problem, what if we just solved it in a different way? What if we sidestepped it? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that it was for sure like, like focus on fewer things, like really streamlining yeah. it, 
what we did. See, this is a hard thing to tell to new designers, right? Like, you could have never made Trench if you hadn't gotten through no, Legend. There's no, there's right? no way. There's no way. And I don't know, like, yeah, if you're listening to this and you're a new designer, I don't know how to tell you to not make your, you know, Halo World of Warcraft hybrid. <laughs> you know, like, I just, I, you know, I, I think that, again, like, crawling before you walk is better, but, I mean, I, there is also, like, running and face planning and then crawling is another way to do it. You know, it's just that, like, then you have, I don't know, then you broke some bones or something. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, it's just, it, that part's really hard. I don't know. I don't know how you get around that stuff. Like, I just, yeah, I wish that it was easier to just trust people when they say, like, take your idea and cut it in half before you even get started. Like, I think that's a really smart way to go about it. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's just hard. It's just a hard thing. Scoping is, is really hard. Like, I still struggle with it. It's, it's really, it's a super, super difficult problem. Like, just knowing how much is going to be enough for the player. Yeah. Um, also, making cuts, and, like, when you make cuts, they, the player might not necessarily know what got cut. Like, that traversal thing in Trench. If you played the game, you wouldn't even thought of that. You wouldn't right. even thought that, oh, my God, this game really needs these, you know, segments where you are, like, traveling, kind of like Left 4 Dead segments where you're, like, traveling between points. Like, and nobody would ever think of that, I don't think, after right. playing that game. Um, yeah, you, just, you often start with your initial concept. And like, yeah, it, it, you're the only one who's like going to be fixated on it, right? Because other people, totally. when they see it fresh, they're just going to see the cool. They're thing. seeing what's there. They're not yeah. seeing what's not there. Yeah. I mean, eventually, they might sort of request features X, Y, Z, but I mean, they're probably not going to request gigantic system, you know, double F. Like that's not what they're going to yeah. request. They're that, gonna that's another huge lesson I think for for young designers is that the game that comes out is never going to be the one that was in your head initially, right? And that's fine. In fact, that's yeah. good. Right? Yeah, because like, it's like, I, I love Tim draws this hockey stick looking thing where it's like, this is great. I'm going to describe it on a podcast. It's <laughs> awesome. You can't see what I'm doing here. Good it's radio. basically like super, super shallow slope for most of it. And then it spikes up at the end and it, you know, it almost goes vertical. And it's basically like charting your knowledge of the game that you're actually making. Yeah. And you basically know jack shit about the actual game that you're going to ship up until almost the moment you ship it, basically. And it's like, you know, you could do all these, like, production techniques to try to make that hockey stick a little flatter, like, a little, make that slope more gradual or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's something you just can't know. You just can't know until you start working on them, and then you run into these problems, and then you got to iterate, you got to change stuff. Like, there's no way to know. And I think it's that, that interact, the interactivity of the medium is that, you know, you just don't know what's going to be fun. There's no way to know. So... Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to get around that one. I mean, part of it, you were, you were talking about, like, with Master Chalice, like, try to start from something that's a little more familiar. I feel like all of my designs and all the things I've been working on up until this one were more about taking the peanut butter and the chocolate and smashing them into each other directly. Right. Even that Ultra Echo game has a lot of, like, hybrid hybridizing of gameplay and, like, all that stuff. I really like it as a designer, but it's really difficult, and Master Chalice was has been more about for me, like taking a, a kind of known formula that hasn't been um, hasn't been riffed on. Mm-hmm. I feel like the XCOM structure. There are not many games that riff on that structure. Sure, of, it's been kind of left dormant for a while. Yeah, it's just it's just it's like tactical battles with a very uh, hands off kind of defensive meta layer. That that structure just like 
doesn't really exist. And then we have what I think is like a really compelling twist in like the marriages and the aging and the babies and all this stuff. So it's like, so it's more applying like a, a big sort of overall pillar to something that we already know that works and then solving all of the, you know, that, that pillar, like, oh man, I'm talking about game pillars. Like I, I hate that word because it makes me think about pitching. It makes me think about yeah, like, yeah. some um, people love to hear about pillars. And it's like, I you have three pillars or you have four? You want to hear about your fourth pillar? Four, four pillars. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it is actually a very useful technique. Like, I when you, when you take the, like, goochiness of, like, you know, the, the dog and pony show out of it, I, I find it really helpful because the, the concept is that, like, what are the four most important things about your game? Or three. Or three. Uh, what are the three or four most important things about your game? And then everything in the game, in as much as, much as you can, you want to take everything and point it back to one of those three or four things, or multiple of them. And then you know when it comes time to cut shit, the ones that don't point back as strongly and reinforce those things that are, quote-unquote, the most important things about your game, you can just cut them. You can be like, oh, well, this, you know, nobody's really going to, you know, well, that's the thing, what was just coming out of my mouth. Well, nobody's really going to care about this. People say that, but you don't, nobody can prove that, and it becomes very contentious. But if you say, well... This feature supports all three of our pillars. You know, it's it's you know it, it definitely hits all these things and it reinforces all those things about the game. And we've decided that those are the most important things. And this other feature kind of only half is really cool, but it only kind of half reinforces this one. Right. Well, then you just cut that one and you just go with the one that like is you know supports these things that you already said were the most important things. I find that very helpful when it comes to like scoping and cutting and stuff like that. Um, where did the uh, where did the idea for Massive Chalice come from? I mean, did you play a lot of the original XCOM? Oh man, ton! It's like one of my favorite games of all time. Like I love that game. Like and that was again like late high school. Yeah. I guess I was getting more into PC games. Yeah. So you really did transition like in the nineties. I really did. Yeah. I really did. That was in like I said where I felt like Western games were really coming into their yeah. own and kind of starting to challenge stuff. Um, yeah, I really got it. I loved loved old XCOM. And I had an idea for just like the fantasy, basically fantasy version of XCOM yeah. for years, but I was like, ah, nobody's interested in this, you know, turn-based strategy doesn't seem like it's that, especially tactical turn-based strategy. I feel like Civ has always done very well, the more meta sure. strategy games have done really well, but the tactical ones kind of fell by the wayside. There weren't that many that um, people were into, even though those are the ones that I'm more drawn to, ones that I, I like. Um, but yeah, like the I guess the eastern ones were still going, but I've always liked the more western take on, on tactics. But um, but yeah, I I don't know. I just didn't think that anybody would really want to fund that game, so it's kind of on the back burner. Um, and it wasn't really until uh, the new XCOM came out that it was like, oh shit! Like I asked tons of people, like I loved it. Yep. I thought it was made for me. Like I played it and I was like, this is awesome. Like this is the this is exactly what I want. Yep. It's like a streamlined version of that old game. Kept the good stuff. But kept the good stuff, but got tons of new stuff, and it's just fucking sweet. I love this. It's perfectly made for me as a human. I was like, but people that didn't play the old one, they're not going to like this. No way. And then talking to all these people, I would ask everybody around that time, I was like, are you playing? And they're like, yeah. I was like, did you play the old one? They're like, no. I'm like, but you like the new one. They're like, yeah. I'm like, what? What do you like about it? And then they list all the all the things that are great about it. You know, they're not like not like they like something else about it. Like, oh, I 
like just like the art and the no they're like no i love that there's permadeath and i love that the questions are random and i love that you know they love all the things that are great about it like i love the tech tree and i love you know i love all that stuff um so that was like really encouraging and but i was still looking searching for like a hook for the game because i thought just doing it in um uh, actually, you know what? It was mostly new XCOM that forced me to look for a hook because characters that level up and have skill trees and do all these things and have you know more interesting equipment and all this stuff, that was, I thought, the hook. Because you take all the things that are great about RPGs and fantasy games yeah. and you inject that into XCOM, they did that in new XCOM. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, they have old classes. That was the sure. other big thing. Classes. Um, but like, I was like, fuck, they just did all these things and they work really well, so cool, but I feel like it needs something else because now it would just, it would really just look like that. Damn. Um, so thinking about stuff, it was, uh, I got a chance of pitching another game, um, that game Brazen, um, which did not work out, but I got a lot of pitching reps in that thing. <laughs> that was sort of my post trench time with like pitching right. this new game for like a year and it's really rough, but, um, I got a chance to go to, um, go to Paris I gotta try to find a way to tell a story where it like doesn't sound as like bougie as because like I, I don't want it to come off this way. It was like it was like a work trip. We were like pitching the game, um, but I like turned it into a real vacation because I'd never been to France before, never been to Paris, and I was like, oh, this will be so cool. Um, and I was over there with uh, with uh, my fiance and my wife, and we were sitting right next to the um, the Notre Dame, the you know big ass cathedral, and we saw it every day and like went over there a couple times and just completely on sorry it's yeah. amazing and reading about it it's like it's been like 300 years to build it yeah, or something. The people who designed it never saw it that's <laughs> right it's crazy and that was really where the idea came from yeah. was that it's like you know the, just the idea of a person who has the like you know intestinal fortitude or whatever you want to call it to like be like i'm going to make this building it's going to be amazing i will never see this building i will only see the the basis level foundation of this thing but one day you know, I know that, like, it's so amazing, my design is so amazing, it will be continued, it will be completed, and then everybody will, like, marvel at this amazing thing. And, you know, my children's children, children will be here. And that's just, it, it just struck me as such a crazy thing. Because it's also, you don't really necessarily think about that stuff. You're like, oh, hey, it took them 300 years to build this building. And it's like, but if you drill into that, it's like, I, I just really imagine all the, like, crazy, um, what you would have to do to get yourself into that headspace. and sort of, um, yeah, just the generational aspect that came kind of directly out of that concept of like, like what if your characters didn't stick around, you know? Um, the other thing it was trying to, and, and I like that it was both thematic, like a sort of, um, I don't know, not, I don't know if thematic is the right word, but it was, uh, um, yeah, thematic. We'll go with thematic. It's textual. It's, it's like, right, you it's know. Yeah, it's just, oh, cool. But it was also a way to mechanically solve the problem of people rejecting permadeath, yep. which I really, really hate um, that the, if you play XCOM or any game that has permadeath in it um, with your squad of dudes, uh, when one of them dies, like, the game is, I feel like it's, it's sending you an invitation. It's it's inviting you into this world of amazing gameplay where uh -huh. it says, like, like I mean, the classic example is that most people will rely on, especially in New XCOM, they'll rely on one kind of character. Like, usually it's like a sniper. Yep. Um, 
they have one sniper that's like a rock sniper. The guy gets all the kills, and he levels up the fastest, and then he or she uh, is just amazing. Like, best character, and you sort of build your whole squad around having this one character. Um, and then you can just, like, randomly lose that character through, like, a lucky crit. You, you make a mistake, whatever, and that character gets killed. And then people just reload, and then they play the rest of the game that way. They have their dream squad of six characters, and it's the same makeup. It's, you know, one of each class, and then, I don't know, maybe I have two snipers, and I have two heavies, and that's my squad, and I use that for the whole game. Um, the injuries don't really make that much of a difference, you know. Uh, but when that you fuck up and you get your 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 star quarterback killed, it's an invitation to play the game in a different fashion. It's an invitation to play with three assault guys and see how that works. And it's an invitation that most people reject. And I I I don't like like I want people to experience like what if your squad is amorphous. Um, also one of my favorite games, Nintendo Generation, uh, Super Nintendo, Final Fantasy Two, actually Final Fantasy Four. You're, you're, it's true that your, your party is dictated by the game, but um, the narrative forces different characters in a different party competition throughout the game so that you actually play with a different party, as yeah. opposed to other kind of more like Pokemon-esque style Final Fantasies where you collect all these characters and you just get to use whichever ones you like and that's it. Uh, or actually forces you into the party. And, I like that. and so it was like, kind of, it was the... A soup of those ideas is basically what came up with like our kind of generational like what if the characters age and you know that's hey that's one of the pillars of the game it's like aging characters um and so you know all the features of like marriage and children and training and all the stuff like point directly back to that and then um and then also you know when we're coming up with abilities for enemies you know we have we have an enemy in the game called a wrinkler that will like, he ages your characters when he hits them. And that's, like, that's something you can't do in a normal tactical game. Is he going to be called the Wrinkler? He's called the Wrinkler, yeah. He's called the Wrinkler. That's awesome. Um, and they can't, like... <laughs> so, like, it's like a character stuck, like transformed from, like, 80s arcades. <laughs> oh, God. Wrinkler. Um, and it's just, like, you know, it's, it's something, again, that is unique. We can't, you can't do it in a normal tactical game. Yeah. But it also points back to that pillar of, sure. like, the, yeah, yeah. the timeline and the, the aging characters and stuff. Um... Well, that have real yeah. consequences in game. You, you have to walk this fine line of like, it has to be significant, but not too significant, right? Because the player can always take the game into their own hands, right? They can always reload, or they can just reject your game entirely. Right. They can right. walk away, and that's and that's our big that's my big fear actually is that you can and you can totally play Mass Chalice and never suffer a combat death. Like we don't force you to play it on Iron Iron mode. Iron Man mode. I don't mm -hmm. want to call it Iron Man mode. That's another thing. Call it Iron Iron mode. Um, but uh, you can totally reload your saves if you if you lose a character on the tactics. Like you don't have to suffer that if you don't want to. But that character will get old and die, right. and there's no reloading out of that. And you're gonna have to like, you will have a more amorphous tactical party in this game than you will in other tactical games. And like, somebody could just reject. Like that, that, that is definitely a fear that I have is that that will like, that will upset some people that like their favorite character is going to like, you know, die and that kind of sucks to them. And probably oh, better. I mean, that seems like that's, that's the core concept of the game. So, I mean, you, you know, I mean, you, you set yourself up where if any game can make it palatable, the sure. greatest one would. Sure. Um, which is, I, I hope so. I mean, because that's idea. the thing, like, with 
the with the generational aspect is that you can have you know that character's son or daughter can be fighting the next generation, and then that character's son or daughter can fight the next generation. You know, you can sort of keep that going, and we have mechanics that encourage you to do that. You know, it's like we have um, when a character dies, like if they if they got a kill, like lived a heroic life, their weapon will become this relic that can then be bound to other characters of that same bloodline. And it just, that weapon will actually, it's like a permanent thing that like levels up throughout the course of the game. So um, for this, you know, um, for the Johnston bloodline, like you can have this weapon and then it, it's like being passed down, being more powerful. And now you're invested in making sure that there's always a Johnston, you know, running around with the thing. And I, so, yeah, and these are like, these are weird new concepts, like, I don't know. We're working on making them, making them work as best we can, and it's like they work on paper, but like in you know in practice, it's like a little bit harder to, to get it to work. But it seems cool. Like I, I hope it. I hope it's like a significant twist on uh, tactics game that people are used to. Yeah, I mean it's a cool concept and uh, cool concept. People responded to it. Um, yeah, that that also gave us a lot of confidence. Like, gave me a lot of confidence that people were willing to throw some money at it. Like, that was cool. And uh, we've had some backers in to like play test the game already, and like they seem to really like it. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess they're predisposed to because like they already paid for it. <laughs> but um, but that's been that's been cool. And I I like I like working for people. Mm-hmm. I like working for a group of people a lot. Um, it's got its own challenges, but it, um, yeah, it's like we want to make them happy. Sure. We're not afraid of them canceling the game. Right. Well, the biggest danger for games is the difference. I mean, so. Yeah, that's, like, oh, man. Stakes are high, but you need stakes. Um, and we talked about that, too, like the amount of content that's out there. Yeah. So much content out there. It's like it's really easy to be taken in a different stance towards your game. It's like... There are probably a bunch of games like your game, and I don't know, unless you're like the best in class of that type of game, it's very difficult to kind of kind of step out of that. So why um, why do you think you want? Why do you think you ended up making games? I think um, I think a lot of it, like I don't know exactly. I think that I've like been zeroing in on it. Um, I'm gonna go to therapy. Um, actually, that was after after Brutal Legends. I got yeah. like really depressed, and um, I finally like decided to go to therapy. It was like amazing, and mainly being from the Midwest, like there's right. like a big stigma. Sure, sure. Um, and like, I, like yeah, I kind of wish that that was my mission in life was trying to like promote mental health for people because I think it's like the, one of the most incredible things. Just like sure. going. Yeah, just going to talk therapy like every week. Like I've just been every week for the last four game, years or something. Game development pushes people to. Oh man, that's giving it's sure. so stressful oh, that it's like it's really great. But I, I think just anybody should just like try to take care of their their own mental health. It's amazing. But um, really helped me out of that position. And like I was talking earlier about that, like separation of like my worth as a person and my work, uh, the worth of my work, and like if they are not the same. And, there are all these factors that influence all both of those things and whatever. Um, but yeah, talking about it in therapy, I've been talking about like uh, that feeling of like uh, escapism 
and I feel like people use the word escapism and it bumps me out because there's like I felt like like the safe space is was more important to me. Um, playing games and having it, yeah, I guess it is a little bit escapist, but it is also a very like safe kind of thing. It's like you're experiencing this game and it's like you're kind of connecting to people but being kind of introverted and whatever, you're just doing it on your own terms and it feels like a very safe thing. Um, and it's, it's like very important to me, I think, like providing, providing this like entertainment thing that can also like help cultivate people's imagination, help be like, um, help be a safe escape from mm. their lives or anything that they're dealing with or whatever. And they can just sort of, um, yeah, like connect with me in a weird way, I guess. It's sort of, it's just like providing this thing for people and just like, it, it also just making people happy. Like, it's like the world kind of blows yeah. a lot of times. And so if you can like make this thing and bring people joy, like I find that amazing as well. Yeah. So I think it's really just like, yeah, it's like trying to make something that I think is really cool and share it with other people and give them something that they're going to think is really cool and, and find be like a safe outlet for yeah. whatever they're going through, you know, like that's, I think that's really like why I stick at it because it's not easy. It's so much competition and it's so difficult and it feels like everybody can do it. Yeah. cheaper, better, faster than you can. So sure. it's like, what are you going to do to do that? Plus, like, I am so, so, so impressed by the, like, ramen indies, the, like, two guys that make a game, and you're just like, how do you, how do you do it? Like, yeah. the, um, uh, Rami, the, the player beer guys, um, I'm just, like, so impressed by the stuff that they do. Also, he spends most of his time on the road promoting their games. So it's like, those games are made by one and a half people, basically. Like, JW, I can't pronounce his name. I'm not going to try, but he is, like, constantly making the game. Yep. Um, and then Rami's just making it, like, halftime, if that. Because he's, you know, talking at conferences and hyping it up and going to trade shows and traveling all over the world and stuff. And, yeah, it's, like, it's just crazy to me that, like, I have mad respect for that. Cause I don't think that I'm that talented or skilled or whatever to like be able to make a game just with like a half of another person. That's, that's totally crazy. That's totally crazy to me. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's, um, but I, I think I'm really driven by just people. Like there was a, that, um, like talking about my depression, talking about therapy and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like talk about player video here that we put out on a double point thing. Talking about that. And then, uh, some guy packed came up to me and was like, like I just started going to talk therapy and it's the best and just wanted that's to say thanks. That was the thing that like pushed me over the edge and I was just like, holy shit, that's like so awesome. Like that and I feel like that's just sort of like an extension of it. You know, like like just I mean even when somebody's just like, I played your game and it was awesome. There's I remember Trench like uh, like I really, really focused on like the co op multiplayer aspect yeah. of it. And there was this one guy that like posted on a Facebook wall for the game or something and was just like kind of like told this like super simple story about how he his let's see he's in like him and his brothers are like in the four corners of the nation right like and that that's how they keep in touch sure. is that they play four player co-op together and they play trench for like a whole summer or something. Yeah. it's just like it's so good and it helps me keep in touch with my my brothers and i love it and whatever that's awesome, that's awesome. And you, there was, can't, you can't really fit in your mind 
the experience of all these people playing your game at once yeah. everywhere and how much that touches people. Like it's, you, you, know, you can understand it exactly, but it's a really yeah. it's a incredible feeling. I mean, it's, I guess that's, you know, it's always what we hope for. Okay, so it's so great. And I remember, Tim, there was, oh man, I'm sure I'm going to blow this. Uh, but I remember talking to him about something. Uh, we were talking about, like, why he does it or why, why he does it. Uh, just like this kind of question. And he was like, oh yeah, like, we don't, he was like, I just kind of think about how I know we're going to make someone's favorite game. And I was like, what? And he was like, well, he's like, there's always going to be one person that plays your game, and it is their favorite game of all time. Like, no matter what. Like, there's so many people out there, and they all have different days, and at least one person is going to be like, this is my absolute favorite game. I love it to that. And he's like, that's why we, like, put all these little details in, and that's why we work so hard on this. And I think that's, like, really amazing thinking about somebody being like, oh, my God, this is my favorite thing. And then usually I think that um, people are defined by their at least, at least when they're younger, I think that the things that you like tend to like help define your personality and stuff. And that's like crazy, thinking that like these things that we make could actually influence somebody's like personality and the way that they go about. Like, because I know it did for me. You know, yeah. like I was such a Nintendo kid, and like all these games had like a huge influence on me. And so it's like just trying to make something that um, that would influence somebody. It sounds really narcissistic. <laughs> and I don't mean it that way. I just mean to like um, have it be like a positive force to make life. Yeah, it's it's, it's a noble goal. So. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I think we oh probably been, this is doing like a six-hour thing. Yeah, <laughs> we got um, the podcast done here today. All right. Well, well thanks. Go back to work. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for taking awesome. time, Brad.